Hey there, boys and girls. Tim K here, host of the Veterans Project podcast, founder of the Caregiver Project and founder of the Veterans Project as well, here to wish you a very Merry Christmas. Hope everybody got all the gifts they want. Hope you got to spend time with all those lovely family members. Maybe some of those not so lovely, but <laughs> who's counting, right? Um, we all have that one in the bunch. Anyways, uh, hope you got to spend that time, uh, you know, in doing all the things that matter. Uh, spending time in love and laughter and all those incredible holiday things. Uh, let's take some active, practical time to do that the rest of the year. And I think that this world becomes a better place for sure. So, anyways, I'm here to tell you about D-Day Response Group. They're a veteran-owned and operated business with the mission of educating and empowering its clients in tactical medicine, marine medicine, and weapons courses. Clients are offered a unique scenario-based training methodology that enables them to learn and become prepared for real-world emergencies and shooting experiences. D-Day instructors are U.S. Armed Forces veterans whose unique and specialized skills present their clients with intensive, cutting-edge, and realistic hands-on learning in a dynamic environment. Guys and girls, it's becoming more important and more imperative that you are prepared. It's always been a necessity, but the modern world is making us very aware that we must be trained, that we must be prepared, that we must be ready for every possible scenario. D-Day Response Group is here to do that. Cecilia and Dawn, I've met them. Um, they sponsored this project uh, through, through D-Day Response Group, and I am so happy to have them as sponsors. They care about this community. They care about the civilian community. community. They want to see you prepared and ready at all times. Um, so we just wanted to thank them for sponsoring the project. Go check them out at dday.com. Find out how you can be prepared and ready for anything. An excerpt from the blog on Sergeant First Class Michael Rodriguez, a Green Beret, hunter, healer, friend, and now the president and CEO of the Global War on Terrorism Memorial Foundation. Memorial. Something especially a structure established to remind people of a person or event. It seems a bit cold when viewed through the lens of a dictionary's pages. It does little to represent the blood, sweat, and tears of a generation prepared for the ultimate sacrifice at the hands of an evil very few understood at the time. But hadn't we begun this battle long before those towers fell? In the early 90s, Michael Rodriguez was 18 years old, a self-ascribed misfit as a Stinger missile air defense crewman in an infantry unit serving in Mogadishu, Somalia. The genocide was cataclysmic, the suffering apocalyptic, and the war on terrorism something not yet brought into our terminology at the moment. Wasn't this terrorism, though? An enemy stood in direct contradiction to the desires of the people, using fear as a weapon to keep the masses under physical psychological, and emotional control in some of the most appalling conditions this planet has ever seen. Rod didn't know it yet, but he was witnessing the birth of something far more sinister. An appendage that would become a wing of the jihadi armies we are now fighting at nauseam every single day across the globe. End excerpt. Michael Rodriguez, Hunter Healer. Green Beret, 18 Delta, Special Forces Medical Sergeant, and now the president of the group that will lead us into one of the greatest moments of legacy capturing in our history.
the Global War on Terrorism Memorial Foundation. Here he is, the one and only Michael Rodriguez. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay, and I will be your host, as always. We've got an incredible guy here. Um, he's already shaking his head, which is great. <laughs> he's gonna. We're we're in uh, we're in North Carolina right now, in his hometown of uh, Fayetteville. Not his hometown. He's from Las Cruces, but uh, we're in Fayetteville in his home. And his name is Michael Rodriguez. Mike, thanks for coming on, man. No, I'm I'm humbled to be here, hermano. Like like seriously. So uh, yeah, de- definitely keep the. No, no spectacular uh, stuff happening on this side of the mic, man. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> he says that now. He's being very, very humble. And then when I say he's humble, he'll be like, "No, I'm not being humble, dude. That's the truth." Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Mike, uh, Mike enjoyed an incredible career in our nation's special forces as a Green Beret. Twenty-one years, right, Mike? Yeah, yeah, twenty-one years. Twenty-one years and wounded over a dozen times. Um, a lot of those injuries being traumatic brain injuries, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mike, when I interview all these guys, the, the cool thing is obviously we come from very different backgrounds and that's the awesome part of this project and something I love a lot. We were talking about that over the past couple of days. So a little background is this podcast has been sponsored by DD response group. I came out to Fayetteville to cover Mike cause I've looked up to him for a while now. Um, and he's just an incredible representative of the Green Berets. He called my buddy Nate Boyer up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nobody that. likes that guy. No, no, no. You <laughs> called me up, and I, I mean, I've been following the Veterans Project for you know years now. Um, you know, and then when you hit me up, I was like, uh, "What? No, no, not me." You had some phenomenal <laughs> guests on there, and one of the things I admire most about the Veterans Project is the diversity. You know, you're not. You know, and you know, I've been talking about it. Is one of the things I really admire is there's no there's no agenda behind it. You know, you're like, hey, you're providing veterans opportunities to tell their stories um, and share it, and there's no goal. You're not pigeoning or pigeonholing any like you know, just these guys or just these people or just this service or just this individual beliefs. Or, I mean, it's it's awesome, you know, the diversity and you're 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 approaching it like a true journalist should. You know, you're just hey, I'm just here, man. I don't have an idea or agenda. Just tell me what you think. You know. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Uh, honestly, I do want to sometimes just cover army guys, but <laughs> well, you know, yeah, you, you yeah. gotta have your preferences, but yeah. you know, <laughs> can't look too biased. All right, Marines, we'll let you in sometimes. <laughs> but um, yeah, it has been a privilege to interview so many incredible Green Berets and members of our special operations community. <clears throat> the project going on right now is obviously Evan Hafer, um, another really good representative. You know, owns a big massive 60 million dollar companies doing incredible things for our community though giving a ton back to the community but mike you've got an incredible story man and i know you'll be like well it's not that great but because <laughs> that's what you do that's part of the humility that's part uh, of covering you guys and why i love you guys but at the same time um you're doing some incredible things with the global war on terror memorial foundation and i would love to get into that but let's backtrack first <clears throat> you didn't grow up 
as did you did you grow up with aspirations of being a Green Beret? Um, you know, like you know, I, I say this quite frequently is like growing up. My first heroes were, you know, uh, my father, the Vietnam veteran, uh, served you know during the Tet Offenses uh, in, wow. in Vietnam. You know, he had his, his deployment went over there. Uh, my grandfather has both served during World War II. Uh, all my uh, grandfathers, their their brothers uh, served. You know, we've had you know uh, some that jumped in during d-day i mean it's just wow um so those are my first heroes you know and so i always idolized those guys so was it, your dad it, army by the way yeah my dad was an army artilleryman um and uh so that's those are my heroes man those are the people i look up to even before like spider-man and the punisher before i started <laughs> reading comic books you know what i'm saying yeah. uh but those are the ones and and you know the thing that struck me most <clears throat> was you know yes they they served there's some pretty uh, harsh conditions in in combat, but uh, they never really they never really glamorized war. They never really talked too much about the war, the reasons and and stuff. Uh, but what they did speak about was those that they served with. You know the uh, those to their left and right. And when they talked about you know those that they were in those situations with, they spoke with them in like reverence, you know, right. and, and it was immensely impactful for me as a child. I was like, well, I didn't know these guys, but you know, they all knew who they, they, my, my, you know, all, all my heroes, they would talk about them and they remember their names, remember their families, remember where they're from. And they would, it was just, it was immensely impactful. They were like, spoke with them like, like familia, you know, like they're, their mm-hmm. family. And I was like, wow, I, I would really love to be exposed to that and have that opportunity. That's awesome. So you grew up in Las Cruces. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Las Cruces, New Mexico. That's where my family's from. So sometimes we get asked, you know, it, it is what it is, right? Uh, you know, being of Latino, Hispanic, Chicano, descent, whatever, you know, whatever you want to, you know, whatever social label you, you want to throw me in, uh, uh, as far as my ethnicity and, and background, uh, I've been asked, you know, like, hey, so when did your family come to the United States? I'm like, well, you know, like, when did we cross the border, right? It's that <laughs> million dollar question, right? Especially now, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I tell people, I'm like, well, you know, we're fortunate that, you know, my family, we didn't cross the border. The, the, when, as America continued to grow, we, the border crossed us. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, we were in southern New Mexico. And, That's so convenient. And South Texas. And yeah. uh, as the border, as, as the United States grew, we were just, I consider it a blessing that our, we were on this side, you know. Wow. So that's kind of how, we, that's how wild. we came here, yeah. So from southern New Mexico, uh, I was born in Deming, New Mexico, but... I know uh, where that is. Yeah, 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 born in Deming, New Mexico, uh, but we didn't live in Las... We lived in Las Cruces. For whatever reason, my mom and dad said, let's drive an hour for the doctors. I don't know. I had no idea. They still can't <laughs> explain it today, but I was raised... I uh, lived my entire life in Las Cruces, New Mexico, until I joined the Army at 17. Wow. So what do you remember about growing up and what kind of led your path? Um, towards the army like what what led you to that was that just the culture there or did you feel a certain pull because obviously you talked about your father and grandfather <clears throat> that just tradition of service mm-hmm. was it that do you it, remember it was that but it was more so like uh you know my uh, my background is very important to me my my cultural and in my heritage uh and we're very supportive of one another um you know familia is everything you know good and bad you know it, it is what it is so um, when I saw that, you know, my, my father, grandfathers and all my tios, you know, I'd served when they talked about that. And, and I kind of touched on it a minute ago about the, the, how a familia can be bigger. And those were guys they served with. And then there were, to me, it opened my eyes that like being part of something bigger than just my familia, my immediate, you know, blood family, whatever, uh, uh, or my local community, but being something 
part of something even bigger than that. And that's when I was like, well, I, mean, I think the military might be. And I, and I love the... I love challenges. I've always loved challenges. I'm oldest of uh, four boys in, in my family. I got three younger brothers, and um, we always competing. Highly competitive family. You know, played soccer, boxing growing up. Uh, you know, and I was just like, well, I think that might be a good challenge. You know, to try it, and and that's kind of what led led me towards the army. I talked with all the recruiters. You know, I, I'll, I'll be honest. My all my I'm a, we're an army family. You know, uh, but I was like, hey, I want to give fair shake. You know, so I talked right. talked with everybody, but. Uh, um, <clears throat> you know, as I did my research in, in high school and stuff, I was like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to do more. And that's when I saw special operations. There was this, uh, there's this, there's this show at the time when in like, uh, like 90, 91, I can't remember, uh, but it was called world of valor. And they would cover special operations units, like the army Rangers, oh, green cool. berets, Navy seals. And I was like, Oh man, I want to do all that. Battle. Man, that looks, <laughs> that looks chingon. You know, I want to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of what led me to make my choices. That's awesome, man. So you're 17 years old and you join up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know about you, you, but for me at 17, that was like a tremendous responsibility of, you know, but, but not realizing until I got to basic training. It's like, oh crap, I'm here now. You know, I joined <laughs> like, <laughs> I joined in 05. It was a real hot time in Iraq, but right. I was there and I was, you know, drill sergeants came back from those first tours of combat. Right. And all of a sudden you got this combat drill sergeant that was yeah, that would, yeah, half think, crazy. Yeah. I think your, your basic training introduction is different than mine, obviously. So uh, when I was a senior in high school, that was when Desert Storm was happening. I graduated in 91. Um, and I was 16 years old. I, was 16. I graduated a little bit early. I used to be oh, cool. a, a person of reasonable intelligence. So <laughs> uh, I, I graduated school, high school a year early, right? Yeah. So I graduated. Awesome. Uh, I was like, oh my gosh, there's a war going on. And I felt that, you know, I've always been a patriot. I was on my country. And, and I was like, oh, I need to get into that. I want to do that. I want to. But, you know, I had to wait a year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it took some convincing to get my parents to sign the waiver saying, yeah, you can join me when you're 17. Um, so I did. And then... You know, uh, but by that time the war was over. So then, when I got to basic, there was uh, the, there was uh, actually there was one drill sergeant who was had been a Desert Storm veteran. So it was a little bit different, I think, than like '05, where you have these hardened combat vets. You know, yeah. uh, the current war. You know, a little insane. Bit, little bit different. Crazy. Um, but yeah. it was. I, I don't know if it was like I don't really think it was a culture shock for me. I grew up in a very strict. Um, structured environment right. growing up not like hard like you know whatever but uh uh um it was just i enjoyed it i loved it man that's awesome so you went to fort sill yes okay yep, i just sill. assume because artillery obviously um you know and, and that's something we talked a little bit about yesterday right because new mexico you got white sands missile ranger so mm -hmm. ada is kind of common right like yeah it, you know i think it was well i'll tell you why i got pulled into air defense so when i went to the recruiter uh great guy um, he told me the truth, but when I got to the maps in El Paso, you know, there, I was like, look, I want to, I want to be an airborne ranger. Right. Yeah. Uh, cause at that time you couldn't go into special forces. That was, I, I, when I joined, I was like, I want to be a green beret someday. Yeah. But you couldn't, you had to be E4 promotable. You know, they, they took seasoned guys at that time. So there's no 18 x-ray. No, no, that didn't start to like O two or three, I think. Uh, but anyway, so the the person the the counselor that gives you your MOS right at the maps she was like uh, well you know we don't have any ranger ranger contracts and he goes but there's an airborne contract here mm -hmm. and I'm like well well what's the job she goes well, it's a stinger at 16 Sierra at the time you know it's a man portable air defense using stingers but when you get to airborne school a ranger battalion recruiter is gonna come around and then you can transfer I'm like okay I'll take it. <laughs> 
I took it. I did basic training, AIT, at Bliss. I went to, to jump school, uh, and I was like the first one there. They're like, hey, the Ranger Battalion guy is going to be here for if you're interested in serving in, in one of the you know in the in Ranger Regiment. I showed up, and he was at the door checking people in. He was like, all right, what's your MOS? What's your MOS? What's your MOS? So, you know, I was the first one. He goes, what's your MOS? I'm a 16th year. He goes, what the the hell is that? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> and I just graduated the course. So I was all proud. I'm like, yeah, man, Port of Air Defense. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a stinger gunner. He goes, yeah, we don't need you guys. Get the hell out of here. We use 11 Bravo. We teach 11 Bravo how to use those. I'm like, oh my gosh, what the hell just happened? Oh, no. <laughs> you know? Dreams crushed. Yeah, I was like, yeah. E- E1, you know, I'm like, oh, 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 Roger man. Sergeant. Bummer. And I left. I'm like, yeah. well, I guess I'm going to Fort Drum. You oh, know? <laughs> <laughs> and that is how your 10th mountain time began. Yes, yeah. And it, yeah. And it, was, it was a blessing. I, I really consider a blessing that my career started that way um because uh, you know shortly after graduating airborne school i went to fort drum and, and it was an, an airborne slot you know uh when i got there and then shortly afterwards you know somalia was happening and they're like hey you know private rodriguez you're going to somalia and i was like oh awesome you know where is that you know <laughs> i guess my geography was kind of off yeah, and they're like yeah. it's on the horn of africa i'm like okay i know where that is i'm like awesome right cool. I, you know i've been watching tv i didn't have a you know, in the common room. Back in the day, man, you didn't have TVs in the room. It was just yeah. everybody's got those portable TVs. Now. Yeah, That's I know, crazy, right? Yeah. So it, it was it was good because then I got to deploy to Somalia. You know, as as an E two, a private, a, a dumb, dumb private. <laughs> Let's preface that by saying dumb, dumb. Yeah, there's a double D on that one, man. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah, it was bad. It was, oh my gosh. So, so how much do you think that time in Somalia really, you know, changed the scope of your career and oh, the was, way that you were headed? Because you, you had a special operations ideal already. You were set up. You wanted to do special operations. Right. But that <clears> had to give you, like, a better idea of what the indigenous kind of cultures... Right. What, the, what that service looked like. Mm-hmm. So, um, Matt goes, it's just going to build on my belief that it was blessings for me because when I got there... Um, the mission that the unit I was with, you know, I was an air defense guy, but we weren't pulling like air covers over there. Right. They're like, Hey, you know, second brigade, uh, this, you know, infantry, you know it was, uh, uh, 287, two, two, eight, seven infantry. They're like, Hey, they need extra guys. You're going to be assigned to them. So I was just like, a assigned to an infantry platoon as an air defense guy, which is like zero respect, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, God love them, but damn it, you know? Yeah, um, so you're just an extra dude. Uh, so our mission was to escort food inland from, we'd pick it up at the port in Mogadishu and then provide security for the food convoys to get inland where really the starving, not that everybody's starving in that country, you know, but get it further inland to where the, the some of the food distribution sites where there was like, like severely malnourished. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was part of the job and then doing QRF in between missions. And But for me, um, it really opened my eyes to what the American military does mm. uh, outside of, you know, providing, you know, hunting down bad guys because there were bad guys there were getting shot at and they were, you know, care if we're, we were taking care of them, whatever, you know, uh, I, I was just a truck driver. I'm not going to say I did all this glamorous stuff. Yeah, no, yeah. no, I'm not going to, I don't need to say that. Um, right. but it, it showed me as, as a young 18 year old, and I was 18 at the time, um, opened my eyes to what the American military does is, you know, we provide hope and relief and, and uh security and safety and and you know and we help you know we were there were people that were living uh you know i talked about this earlier you know how crazy somalia is uh it was kind of like set the tone for my entire career and that's when i realized i wanted that's what i wanted to do the rest of my life um was uh you know you have people living moment to moment you know people like survive there's talking there's, there's people say oh survival you gotta survive you know i'm like well you know um <clears throat> you know, watching 
children who have nobody. Their parents are dead, long gone. They're just taking care of each other. These two, three, four, six-year-old kids just huddled in masses, you know, with distended bellies, just, you know, they're living moment to moment, you know, and that, you know, I was like, holy crap. And we were providing food for them. We were providing, you know, at least get them to, the, to those next few moments and to the next day and hopefully, you know, another a better tomorrow or a better next week or something, you know, and that was for me, it was just... Yeah, I know. It's 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 immense. It's it's a lot to see. Right, and I think you and I talked, and you said even you know that was probably the thing that will always stick with you. You know, oh, all yeah. your tours, <clears throat> tours you did Iraq, right? Oh, uh, yeah, Afghanistan. I never made it to Iraq. You did Afghanistan, you know, quite a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, and your time in Somalia was the most impactful as far as your military yeah, career goes. I th- yeah, it was by far. It um, uh, in, in you know, maybe because I was a younger, impressionable 18 year old, but I've never, I've never seen anything like that since, you know, uh, and and not to diminish any of the, um, you know, atrocities and carnage and, uh, of the current war and, and the, you know, how, how people are struggling, but I've never seen anything like that. I mean, human life really doesn't really carry any value in that country whatsoever. And, and that is true to some degree in, in, in some of the theaters that we're in right now. But for me personally, this is all my personal opinions and, and beliefs. I've never seen anything like that. Um, it's, yeah. and it, it's, that's what, you know, when I close my eyes at night, uh-huh. those are like, we were, I was showing you some pictures last night, you know, uh, those are the images I see most. Those are the, you know, all the little, the little ones, you know, the, the yeah. kids. And it was crazy. It's like, I, I mentioned that what type of situation those children were in, uh, completely alone, living moment to moment. But every time we showed up, man, those kids were s- smiles. I mean, yeah. smiles and waving and happy and uh, and and to see that that level of hope, you know, uh, in kids was just ah oh, man. You know, I'm getting yeah. all like choked up thinking about it. Yeah. But yeah. those are the ones I remember most. I mean, some of them didn't have their hair was falling out. They didn't have teeth or something malnourished. Uh, but they were smiling and waving and just happy. Just this, some of the purest forms and expressions of happiness I've ever seen. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't go over there. Um, but it, obviously I, I had a squad leader who, you know, and for people who know the project, they know Carter chick, but Carter had <coughs> talked about his time in Somalia is just the most impactful, um, for many individual reasons, but I truly believe, you know, and, and I would, you know, easily go on record as saying that, you know, I think that what, you know, the thing that he always talked about whenever he was most depressed was Somalia. And I really believe, like, that triggered a lot in him, you know. Like, he really struggled with that, you know, being a young Marine and, you know, 18 years old and being over there and seeing those people. And he talked about that, too, the smiles. Like, you know, kids, them showing up, and it was, like, the biggest deal in the world to those kids. And, you know, they were probably, most of a lot of them were days away from death, you know, like, just, you know, in such horrible conditions. So, but obviously the complexities of that battlefield kind of, you know, a peacekeeping mission, AKA battlefield as well, you know, because it was an active hot zone. Yeah. Um, you know, it, pre- it prepared you right for your career later, moving to Afghanistan and, uh, joining the teams. Right. You right. feel like that was a great foundation for you. Yeah, it, it was, you know, and I saw it's, it's funny. Uh, so I saw an SF team one time when I was uh, over there as we were in uh, Mogadishu 
and and I saw an SF team, and I could tell they were like different. I was just like, holy crap, who are those guys? You know, they're just, they weren't wearing all the shit we were wearing. You know, they were yeah. seemed far more comfortable. They didn't have to wear these big old Kevlar's that weighed like I don't know how many pounds. And, <laughs> and and I was like, man, who the heck are those guys? Whatever. And I had to ask, you know, I was like, hey, who, who are those guys? You know, they were Americans, obviously. Right. You, know, you could see them, you know, but they had their hair. I mean, it's just completely different. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and not arrogant or, or braggadocious by any my way, you know, they were just carry themselves different, you know. And they, and I think too is they had a pet monkey. I'm like, holy crap, these dudes have a monkey. You know? <laughs> they uh, get it way nicer than yeah, we do. <laughs> I, I can only even have like so many bottles of water today. These guys have a damn pet monkey, man. They, they, they can do whatever they want, right? This is the career, right? Uh, everybody wants a pet monkey, I guess. I don't know. But um, <clears throat> and that's what led Michael Rodriguez into <laughs> seven special forces. Crew. <laughs> I know, right? Crazy thing is regarding that team that I saw in Somalia. Fast forward, like I don't know, eight years, seven years from that moment. Uh, I was in the 18 Delta course, and uh, there was a there was a guy that was a 18 Bravo, you know, an SF guy reclassed as an 18 Delta, which was what I was in the course. So you know, guys could reclass and come to the Q course, the 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 MOS portion and it was that guy's team. He was actually on, I was telling that story oh, and wow. he was like, dude, are you serious? I was like, yeah, man. He was like, yeah, man, that was, that was our team. We had that monkey. We used to let loose in the chow hall. He goes, we terrorized everywhere with that monkey. I'm like, well, I'll be down. You, know? <laughs> you met him. I met him. That. Yeah. Yeah. That's I met the guy. Wild, yeah. I met the hombre. It was kind of crazy. Trip. Yeah. I was kind of still jealous though. <laughs> still jealous. Yeah, even I, in the course. I, I've never had a pet monkey, man. That's dude, like you didn't even get it when you got into seventh no, group? No, no, no. We kind of had a pet sloth for a minute in Colombia one time. That's pretty cool. I think it's cooler, yeah. but they smell funny. But yeah. Ah, anyway. Yeah. yeah. So off of that, man. So we were talking about, you know, that and, you know, you you're in <clears throat> Somalia. Can you talk about maybe one time over there where you really saw what, you know, what the purpose of that mission was? Like maybe a, a powerful moment for you in Somalia. You know, were you ever afraid? Were you ever, you know, did you ever spend time over there nervous at all? Um, <clears throat> I, I think I was kind of ignorant. You know, because uh, I don't, I was never ever really like afraid. Uh, I mean, we we're getting shot at and stuff, but it was, uh, you know, probably a, a, aside from the mission, you know, I'll, I'll come back to that. But probably one of the most impactful moments for me during that one of, there were several, uh, but one of the most impactful moments for me on that deployment was a leadership lesson. <clears throat> and uh, so we were taking fire one time and uh, there was a guy or a squad leader at the time is really big dude man he was just uh very menacing very like you know like one of them you know dominating uh figures you know in any you know in in, in uh it was just crazy dude you know i still see him he's a big scary guy you know i was a little dude i've always been a little guy you know and i'm just like damn so we were taking fire one time and then you know uh i wasn't scared we were you know doing my job the one i had to do um, <clears throat> but then, uh, it turned around that he, he was beneath the vehicle hiding, like cowering and, you know, not, not to judge the guy. I don't know what his background was. He might, I, I don't know. You know, I try not to be a judgmental individual, so I don't know what he was carrying around or what he was doing. I think he was a desert storm bat. So he might've, you know, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean I'm not going to put words in his mouth and I'm not going to name him either, you know? Uh, right. um, but when I saw that, that was the only time I was scared. Because his fear, his like fear for his life, for me, you know, him being a, a dominant figure, you know, for me, uh, role model type, uh, kind of, that's what scared me. Not the incoming rounds. And it wasn't like we were taking, you know, fire from a PKM or something, but it was like intermittent. We didn't know where it was coming from. Um, we had a general area, but we didn't, I didn't know. Uh, and it was just, it's, that scared me. You know, I don't know if it was his fear that scared me. 
or the fact that he was someone I looked up to that was scared or what, but it was contagious. And yeah. it, 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 that's the only time I was scared. Uh, well, probably the most significant time I was scared. And, you know, I took from that years, you know, I carried that, you know, to, to this day, you know, I, I was taught that lesson as a young 18 year old, you know, E2, that as a leader, your actions affect others around you. Right. Always. They're always going to. Your attitude, your actions, your your raw emotion, people will pick up on it whether you know or not. And it's, he wasn't hiding, just hiding from the incoming fire. He was hiding from us too, mm, you know, all, yeah. his, all his Joes, you know. And so I carried that, and I've always remembered that. I always put that, in my, you know, in, in the forefront of my mind. On the back of my mind, that's something I always remember. And and I was like, wow, if I'm ever a leader, if I ever get in a leader's position, I don't ever want to exhibit that. But to even take that step, a step further, you know, <clears throat> you know, fast forward some years from that moment, when I became a father, I realized, you know what, that's a lesson I need to carry on with my son. You know, I have three sons. Uh, I have an wow. 18-month-old grandson now. Um, and that's, I still remember that moment. And I'm like, man, I need to be a, a positive figure in these young man's lives. Um, and, and I've done that with everything. Any, you know, I've been blessed to hold, you know, a few different leadership positions in my life and you know, currently hold one now. And, and that's something I always remembered and taking, taking with me. Probably the most impactful leadership lesson I've ever learned. Wow. And it came off of kind of a bad moment. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, we were getting shot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was it was in combat, you but, know. But isn't that funny how those moments of adversity like even uh, even though, you know, that was a weak moment obviously for him, the others around him could have taken positives from that moment. And even in the darkness of it, you know, because it listen, cowering or, you know, getting into a spot like that, you know, can can end up getting other guys killed. It just can. I mean, You're especially right. being an You're right. Unit. And you know, I was and I didn't say nothing and none of us right. ever talked about it, but one thing I do remember was Nobody else did that. Nobody yeah. else crawled under the Humvee with him. <laughs> like he, was the, he was the only one. So the dynamic yeah. changed from that. The oh, rest yeah. of the deployment, because this big, you know, marching going badass was like, dude, you, you, we, it didn't have to be said. Yeah. And us as junior enlisted soldiers, we didn't have to talk about it. We all know. Yeah. We saw. It, we're like, yeah, okay. You'll be a quiet elephant in the room. You yeah. Know? And and <laughs> like, like I said, you know, back then, I'll, I'll be honest. I was in my mind. I'm like, man, what a. You know, I was thinking bad. Yeah, thoughts, of course. Yeah. Now that I'm a little older, and you know, yeah. I, I kind of look back, and I'm like, you know what? I, I, it's, you know, it's not fair for me to judge right. him. Yeah, I think you know, and and not to judge your younger self either, because the the attitude is, you know, it's just indicative of being in an infantry unit, young grunts, you know, doing the job. That is seen as cowardly. It is the thing. Yeah, you know, it there is. is that. It's a boys' it, culture. Yeah, there's, you can't soften that definition. No, I'm no. sorry, man. Yeah. It, that's what it happened. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from there, you come back from Somalia. Uh -huh. You know, the, obviously, the, tr the trip over there, you know, you see that value of human life not being very high and, you know, incredibly low, in fact. But to you guys, you know, there were some incredible moments over there, right? And seeing, you know, you spoke about the smiling faces. Yeah. And that's something that will... I, I mean, I got chills, Mike, like, you know, when you're showing me those photos, because I get to see those photos yeah, of those yeah, people smiling. Yeah. I mean, what's that like, uh, know, seeing that? It's immensely powerful, but it's, I, I, mean, I don't know the word to describe it. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to use the word haunting, because right. I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, those are the faces I see. Those are my little shadows, man. Because mm -hmm. um, I don't know where they're at. I pray, I pray that they're still alive, but the likelihood's not, you yeah. know, the, the vast majority of those young ones that I saw that like impacted me in 
will have impacted me my entire life. Um, and I share, their, share that as often as I can, just hope, in the hopes that it may impact others, but in a positive way. Um, it's, it's haunting, man. Yeah. And, it's, and, it's, 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 uh, and I don't regret it. I'm glad. I, 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 a lot of everything that happened from, my, well, not just the time in the military, my upbringing as well, um, but that helped turn me into the, you know, the hombre that's on the other side of this yeah. mic, man. And, and I, don't, I don't think I'm a best person. I do the best I can, but I'm not going to have any of those regrets. I don't want to, like, diminish or try and, you know, make, mm. look, look, look at it the other way. Look at it in a negative way. I try, I try to find, finally, in my life, you know, I try to find, like, all right, this sucked, but what did I learn? Yeah. What can I glean from it? How can I be a better person for that? It is amazing how all those moments throughout your life, you know, whether adversity, high points, low points, they all cultivate the <clears throat> sense of who you are. You know, they all add up. We talk, you know, we'll be talking about artwork throughout this podcast, but being an artist, you know, the the fabric of your life, mm -hmm. you know, is interwoven throughout these moments. You know, Somalia, uh, watching these kids smiling at you, you know, in, yeah. in a very powerful way, and then coming back, and then so from there, you come back and you head off to Las Cruces, right? You you weren't you with an ADA didn't you join an ADA unit or yeah well I was yeah. up at Fort Drum so then okay. after that deployment I went back to Drum you know Teth Mountain Division up right. in, upstate New York you know the, the frozen north man it was crazy up there uh um, <clears throat> and then about a year or a little after a little year and a half I think uh man never do math out loud right or, or dates I'll <laughs> screw it up so apologies well I think I just fast forwarded your story somehow yeah somewhere. so, so then uh, um I got to another opportunity to deploy uh, when Raul Cedras uh, had, had taken over the government, it was a dictatorship in mm, Haiti at the time. Right. It's called uh, Operation Restore Democracy. Um, so then I was part of the uh, 10th Mountain Division Task Force that was on the USS Eisenhower. So we went to Norfolk, boarded a ship. The first time that had happened since World War II, there was an Army Task Force on an aircraft carrier or a landing craft. You know, well, not really a landing craft, but you know, a vessel, a Navy vessel, right. getting ready to do some do some work. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, to my knowledge, that hadn't happened since, since D-Day. So we were on there. They offloaded all the fixed wings, put on our birds, you know, the, the helos, the, the Black Hawk Chinooks and such, uh, and embarked down there. And that's when, you know, we were getting ready to invade Haiti to remove this dictator. Because um, <clears throat> they just had a democracy, a, a, a democratic election. And he was like, nope, uh, no, man, I'm in charge. You know, wow. so then... You know, we were just off the coast. The entire carrier group, as well as some other, there was a special operations uh, uh, vessel as well yeah. uh, in the area. I, I, some of the guys in my community they were actually on it. It was kind of cool. Wow, uh, it's a small circle, man. Uh, so you know, and then the 82nd and, and the Rangers were in the air, just like circling, ready to go. And I think it was uh, uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson and former President Carter talked to Cedras. You know, it was last ditch peace talk effort, and they're like, "Hey, look, man." Uh, might want to step out because there's a bit, these guys are coming with a, not one big stick. There's a lot of big sticks coming, you know, and, <laughs> you know, thankfully, you know, for the, for the, um, thankfully for the, the people of Haiti, um, we didn't have to come in fighting, you know, because I remember sitting on the aircraft carrier getting ready to go in. We had three different ROE cards and rules of engagement cards. There was a white one, a black one, and a red one, you know, and it was like, Hey, we're going in, you know, flowers in our hair. One, we're like, hey, you can identify. <laughs> and then the third one was like, hey, man, just just go. You know what I mean? So <laughs> We got to have color designators right, in the infantry units, right, too. Yeah, we're like, you know, red so, kill? Okay. <laughs> so it was crazy. Uh, but then right at the last minute, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. You know, all of us wanted to fight. We were course, there. We're like, yeah. no, that's what, yeah, let's do this, you know. Yeah. So, you know, uh, truth be told, I was disappointed. They're yeah. like, no. We're like, God. 
dang it. And then yeah. Yeah, I think the guys were more disappointed with the 82nd and the, the Ranger kids that were, you know, circling over. I mean, the, the, it was there was a big fight coming. Yeah. You know, the, the abilities. Jump, huh? Yeah, I mean, the yeah. abilities of our military are phenomenal, and sometimes people just are ignorant to that. So. Yeah. So then we went in, um, and I spent about seven, eight months there. Um, so I did that deployment. And again, I ran into another SF, SF guy. I think third group was there at the time. Uh, again, cool dudes. I'm like, man, Wine these guys shirts, are cool. Yeah, yeah, longer, yeah. longer hair, uh, <laughs> playing volleyball and stuff. You know? I was like, man. <laughs> Top gun. Didn't have to, you know, and it's it Haiti. It's the Caribbean. It's hot as hell, man. But they weren't wearing all that shit we were you know we they were all speedos comfy. on them. well no no they weren't they weren't like our frogman brothers but, ah. you know, they didn't go that far god love them but uh but uh so um good. but they're still almost right almost, yeah. plenty of gel plenty of gel for everybody <laughs> just gel for everybody right but uh yeah. it was just very interesting and we would go and do stuff uh and we'd get there and they were already there and what was really cool for me to see was they were part of the local population they were wow. you know you know part of the you know, mission is, is buy through and with host nation, yeah. you know, local forces and, and their local populace. And they speak, spoke the language. So awesome. they were ingrained into the populace. And I was like, holy crap. And, and that's, that was when at that time I was an E4. Uh, and I was like, man, these guys are, you know, that's even at that young age, you know, I, at 20 years old, I was like, wow, these guys, the impact, the, uh, the opportunities that they have by being part of the community is huge. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I hope you guys are sensing a common theme. You know, I, I believe in community. We're tribalists yes. in nature, right? And your community is stronger together, you know, not to, I mean, I think that, I think that uh, saying has been like diminished so much, but really that's who we are. And to be part of that and go through that, it was, it was amazing. And I saw that even then I was like, man, I got to, one of these days I'm going to go to selection. One of these days I need to go. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think the saying has been diminished so much too, because, you know, it keeps, being used yeah. um and it's true yeah i mean the wolf pack the tribe whatever the flock you know <laughs> i mean the, the we've got like a hundred right? different oh designators gosh, for it now know, you know, know like know. yeah it's exhausting yeah uh for the guys that are in the community i mean you know i hear it all the time but you know th- that was a very powerful profound part of your experience <clears throat> being in haiti and seeing these mm-hmm. special operations guys so yeah. that leads you to so then after that you know it was for my four-year enlistment and then uh you know you know, people like choice of duty station. And uh, I was like, hey, I want to go. Maybe I'll get stationed at White Sands, close to home. I'm from Las Cruces. It's right there. It'd be kind of cool. So I go down there and I get stationed at White Sands, relisted for it. And I was like a two, three year enlistment, whatever it was. Um, and I get down there. I had made E5. And, and then that's what kind of, I don't want to say it held me back from going to selection, but right after that deployment, I'm 85. And I was, I was a team chief and a leader. And I was like, I want to, I want to make better. I want to make my, my soldiers better than I am, you know, that's what I've always seen for leaders, uh, throughout my entire career. The, and I tried to do that. I wanted, I was never an oppressive leader. I never done that. Um, I've I've had plenty of those. Um, (laughs) but I wanted to make the future better than me. I wanted them. I wanted that. Right. So then I did that for a minute and then I got stationed down in New Mexico. Uh, and I was there as soon as I got, there, it was cool. It was a cool gig, I guess. Uh, cause all I did was work for scientists, rocket scientists and fire stingers. That is pretty cool. Uh, wow. I fired like stingers and SA-7s, SA-14, like Russian equivalent to stingers. And I would wow. shoot down like sometimes it was uh, these big like model rockets that we should call BATS, ballistic aerial targets. And sometimes it'd be a remote controlled F-4 from Holloman Air Force Base. And I'm going to kill uh, uh, everyone's, 
you know, dream right now is like, when you shoot a jet out of the sky, it's not a big ball of flame, man. It's very anticlimactic. So it's a little pop, and then it spins out, and you're like, oh, well, damn. I guess. <laughs> that's unless, disappointing. You know, yeah. um, unless you hit the fuel tank, then there might be one. But anyway, so that's what I did, and I, it was cool. You know, looking back, oh, wow, that's cool. But it wasn't me. I, was no, I didn't have any T50. There was no challenge. Uh, right. And I was like, man, I, I need to do something. And that's when I was like, you know what? I think it's time. I, I need to throw my hat in the ring and see if I'm good enough to you know, make it went to selection. And you had spent, you know, a lot of time in Las Cruces, you know, kind of building up that resistance too, right? And oh yeah. I was at, at, well, like in, in, in White Sands, it's like 4,800, 5,000 square feet. So I would yeah. like run up to Baylor pass and, and I used to be a really good runner and had really good times and I had really great cardio. So and you boxed. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. Um, <clears throat> so I, uh, you know, I prepared myself. I mean, I've always prepared myself for yeah. anything I, I, to the best of my abilities. You know, sometimes you get thrown into something you're not ready for it. But right. for that, I was like, all right, I want to be sure I know what I'm doing. I want to, you know, like even like back that up, like before basic training, I signed under the delay entry program. It was like four months I had to wait to deploy. So I did like, you no, know, my train up was like six days a week. I did a, I did a, a PT test and then did as many pushups and sit-ups as I possibly could every for like five or six days a week. So wow. when I got to... When I got to basic, you know, I'm not trying to be I'm not bragging or whatever, but I mean, like, seriously, the first PT test I ever took was like a 340, you know, wow. like it was, wow. so, you know, it, it kind of eased some of the tension off the drill sergeants. They wouldn't like screw with me because I was like the <laughs> fastest, you yeah. know, they're like, okay, we'll leave, we'll leave that little guy alone. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think I did like 12 push-ups or something. Oh, I, did, no, I, I did like 25 and oh, I counted man. like 12 of them. No, I was, I mean, I was, I was, but I was built like a rail man. I was right. super thin. So, yeah. But anyway, to selection, I prepared. I was like, no, I don't yeah. want to do that, which helped me when I got to selection because this is going to sound bad. What helped me get through selection is I fed off others' failure. <laughs> I, I'm serious. You're right. That does sound terrible. That, that sounds really yeah. bad. You know, I, people that know me, they're like, wow, Rod was saying that? Yeah. I, I, I didn't like rub it in their face. I didn't go up to them like, dude, you suck. No. I was going to say you're a good guy. But for me, <laughs> I saw them like, all right, I need to do better than Okay, his okay. He didn't make it for these reasons. I need. I empowered me like, well, I'm prepared. I'm I'm ready, and I just it it uh, you know, I just wanted to do better. So like during individual some of the individual events, you would hey start at the cones, run till you're done. They don't tell you how far you're running, but you just start going. You follow the cones and follow the arrows at the cones. You might be running two miles. You might be running twelve miles. But what I would do is I look at the person in front of me. Like, right, I'm going to catch that person. I'm going to catch that person. And yeah. I see the person in front of them. I'm going to catch that person. I catch them. And that's what it was. You yeah. know, that's kind of how I fed off others. That's awesome. So you you came in prepared, obviously. Yeah. You yeah. know, yeah, you were yeah. ready. Yeah, it was crazy to watch some of the people show up. They weren't prepared. There was a guy that said he did a bunch of yoga for it. I'm like, huh? No <laughs> offense to the yogis, but I don't think you should do yoga. That sh there should be something else. I'm, yeah. I do yoga today, but I wouldn't use yoga as my primary mm. training regimen to get ready for a selection yeah yeah i mean we, we talked earlier about your son you know <laughs> like being a yoga course like class and being like oh yeah like he's, he's a gymnast well yeah my yeah. youngest is a gymnast yeah, yeah and he going into yoga class he did like an hour yeah he, he thought it was the warm-up yeah 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 <laughs> so his mom took him and they did and he was a gymnast for like five years at that point and yeah. they're the 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 instructor goes, all right, well, we're going to warm up for 10 minutes and begin. So then they do it for an hour, 10 minutes, and they don't tell you when they start. She just starts doing it. And so the instructor's guiding him. And he was like 10 at the time. <laughs> so then they're okay. And then, okay, we're done. And then he turns to his mom and he goes, mom, that was a long 10 minutes. When are we going to start? And she's like, we're done. <laughs> so 
was all uh, your perspective on this. You know? Yeah, sorry, yogis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, we son, my, my sons kinda. are freaks, man. They're, yeah. they're little genetic freaks. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, but those, I mean, gymnastics is so rough. Oh, yeah. People don't have any idea how tough that is. I mean, oh, yeah. it's just pure wiry muscle. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, as you go into selection, you know, what's the feeling? Are you excited? Are you stoked about it? Are you? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm ex- yeah. I was excited, but yeah. nervous, of course. Yeah. Not, I didn't. I didn't know any green berets before. I didn't know. I had seen them, like I told you, my exposure to them. I didn't know them. There wasn't any up at drum. I didn't see any quite sands. I just, I was like, oh my gosh. I wanted to be able to perform. I, w- I was hoping that I would have brought enough to the table that they'd see something, you know, in me. But like, okay, let's give this guy a chance, you know, and make it through selection. So, yeah, I was nervous as hell. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine. Um, but you know, we we uh, we have the people over from D Day Response Group. Shout out to D Day, uh, big thanks for sponsoring this project. They love Mike. <laughs> no, um, they're, they're Don and Don and Cecilia are awesome folks, man. Yeah. I love them. They're familiar, man. Yeah, they're great. So Don is eighteen Delta. Yep. Um, actually, reclass, right? Yeah, I mean, Don was one of those guys that reclassed. He said he was a Bravo first, mm-hmm. uh, and then he reclassed. And it was crazy. Is we didn't realize last till last night we were, we were you know in the house talking. Is uh, he was like a class ahead of me. We were we yeah. we were, you know I was going through the course, but he was reclassing at the time. So he was a a class ahead of me. And the guy that had a pet monkey, he knows him. They're both. And it was a, <laughs> wow. It's a small small world. That's a small you know? world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we you know on top of Mike presenting Don with an incredible gift, which was a uh, uh, piece of the South Tower, right? Yeah. South yeah. Tower, you know, World Trade Center presented with a piece, which is a huge honor because Mike doesn't sell any of his stuff. Mm-mm. And he gave him a piece of that um, to thank them for sponsoring the project. But they were just so grateful. I mean, you could see it in their eyes and they were very thankful. Uh, but Don, you know, obviously extensive medical knowledge. You know, we got into a lot of that last night. Yeah. You know, yeah. I know I felt bad last night. Me and Don are getting all nerded out on 18 Delta stuff. And everybody else in the room was like, I got nothing. To add. <laughs> <laughs> they were just sitting there. And I'm like, and I was like, oh, man, we need, we, need to, we need to shift here because we 20 minutes. You and I are the only ones talking right yeah. now. And then, you know, all the kids were here. Their mom was here. I mean, everybody was here. And I'm like, oh, man, we kind of bogarted that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, we got all nerded out. Dude. Yeah, yeah. It would be weird if 18 Deltas didn't nerd out. Like yeah. I'm, I'm so used to that. So, <laughs> but what I was leading into is, I mean, that that's a tough course, man. Like, yeah. you know, you, you like for those of you listening, you know, civilians, you know, military has some tough schools. The 18 Delta school is incredibly tough. It's, and it leads into some of the best, you know, leads into creating some of the best medics ever seen on this planet, I believe. And so you guys, you're, you're going into that course. You're going obviously into selection and all that. And it's not just three weeks. I mean, it's much longer. Than oh, that. yeah. Like yeah. selection. I, I just hope people all the time. They're like, well, like, well, your selection is only three weeks. I'm like, no, here's the thing with selection. So, yeah, the, the individual to see if you're, you know, if you're good enough to try to continue to the qualification, the, course, the Q course. But you know, me and Don were talking about last night. Um, selection is never ending. So, like every day of the Q course, it could be your last day. You know, this could be it. Whether you <laughs> fail, uh, you don't meet a gate, you fail the standard, or even you know the, the instructors are given the leeway. And I, 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 I fully support the, the this is that guy's exhibiting some behaviors and stuff. Like you know, what? I don't think you're right for the community. We need to recommend you for release from the course. Mm, and so wow. selection is never ending. So as an 18 Delta, our courses. Uh, it's harder because it's it's yeah the physical part is hard it's it's always hard physically challenging but it's the academic portion right um, so academically it's far more challenging than the other than the other courses but it's uh, 
it's, it's two years long. Like it took me two Jeez. years of wow. training to, to become a Green Beret from the, the time I started the Q course. And I counted the three week selection because you go to selection and if you make it, they send you back to your home station. They're like, all right, here's your report date for the, your class start. Yeah. And then you come back to brag and you just, you know, nose the grind. So that was two years from start to finish to include, you know, uh, to include, uh, you know, uh, language school, depending on your language. Some guys right. got to go to school for six months. Uh, if some of the harder language like Arabic and Russian and such, uh, and then it's like two years and, and seer school. Cause you have to go to seer school and now, which is awesome. They have to, they go to halo school as well. Mm, wow. So it's, it's long, it's a long course. Mm. Very, so you have to go to halo school now? Yeah. Everybody, oh. all SF guys are. Halo wow. Now. Yeah. That's amazing. I think it's great. It wasn't when yeah. I went through it. It's, 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 it's definitely a far better form of, of, uh, infill than static line. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So obviously, you know, you, you make it through, what's the feeling? I mean, elation, right? Like, you're, Oh yeah. You, yeah. You made it. Yeah. When I, you know, when I, when I graduated, when I made it through selection at the end, they're like, all right, what's crazy is that like they split you, those that haven't quit to this point, they split you up. Like, are right, you guys go over here? And then they, they call your roster numbers off. You're like your numbers. I was like two, three, three, you know, that I got my yeah. white tags it's up right here on the wall. Yeah. yeah. It's on the wall. Right. Uh, so you're, you're a number, right? So, uh, and then they separate you, and there was like a small group. I mean, our class was sort of like 400 some guys, and there was like, I don't know, I think there was like 70 of us left, or 60. And then, uh, all right, uh, gentlemen, congratulations. Uh, we would like to invite you to be on. You know, you, you you've been selected to continue training. So that was cool. That was like, oh my gosh, I actually made it. I wasn't part of the group. And then the other group, which was larger than the leftovers, uh, you know, was larger than us. Was they were like, hey, nah, see ya, pack your bags, or you're gonna oh make it. Gosh. You know. Um, so anyway. You know, I was elated, but it was still, it was still nerves, man. It was just, it was just nervous. It's exciting. Um, but when I graduated the Q course, and the first time I put my green beret on at the regimental dinner, um, because they have a, at the end the culmination, you have a regimental dinner. All the group commanders or the representatives come to this dinner with all the graduates, and you have this donning of the berets. It's a private ceremony, a private dinner, and it was awesome. It was just I could not, I could not describe what that was like. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So you know, we'll talk about transference of skills you know you learn a lot as a green beret you know um obviously going through q course and all that but then you know becoming very specialized within that medical profession you know 18 delta obviously <clears throat> being thought of by many as being the toughest thing you can do as a green beret you're learning a lot of specialties how do you remember the first time that impacted you overseas on a combat tour? yeah i do and it's it's not like this what people think like with 18 deltas and and it, it, full disclosure so I want to, I want to, you know, acknowledge the, so there are actually seals that will come back because the seals have, uh, ID, the corpsman, you know, they, they have a medic as well. So sometimes some of the seals will, uh, send a guy back. They call it the long course, right? So the, cause the, the course is broken up into two parts. There's the first half and like a lot of the Ranger battalion kids come and the special operations, aviation, regimental, um, Medics come if they're signing a unit. Uh, some of the SEALs, their initial, like their medical training guys come. Uh, some of the, the MARSOC medics come. But it's only the first portion. The second half is just for SF guys. But wow. sometimes some of the SEALs come back, and they'll do what's called the long course. So those wow. guys actually get there. And that's where, you know, if you can imagine the two parts, the first part is like a two-inch fire hose you drink to do. Yeah. The second part is a four-inch fire hose. You know? <laughs> and that's where you get into the surgery and a lot more of the clinical medicine and a lot more like really deep dive into dentistry, preventive medicine, laboratory, veterinary. I mean, you name it. If it's if you think it's medical, we probably do it. Wow. You know? um, so anyway, I, 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 pref I say that to preface with the story I'll tell real quick. 
So my first one isn't like this big mass casualty situation where like, yeah, I was throwing tourniquets here and, and throwing, you know, dragon guy. No, it was not. So for me, um, it's, it's a lot of the medicine. It's, it's like a problem solving, right? It's right. not a linear thought process. So you have to figure this things out, you know, and I love challenges, you know? Yeah. And I was like, how do I figure it out? So, and it, we were doing a, a medical treatment, uh, um, <clears throat> doing some medical treatment and they brought this girl in and she was like eight or nine years old. Uh, she was about the size of a five-year-old. Um, and as soon as they brought her in, they were like, hey, this, this girl's possessed and they have the devil in her. There's something wrong with her, you know. And, and right away when she walked in, I could tell she had some mental deficiencies. I'm like, God, man, you know, hit me in the face. You know, girls aren't treated very well in, in the culture over there. They're treated less. And this girl's had some obstacles that she faced daily, you know. Um, so, of course, she was like less than nothing. And they probably took better care of their pets than they did her. Wow. So they bring her in. Right away I noticed that. And, and uh, you know, she was in really bad shape. She had uh, several injuries on her, uh, soft tissue injuries, um, in various stages of healing, meaning it was repetitive. She was probably abused. Um, well, I can guarantee she was abused. Uh, you could see some malformant, malformations in her fingers and hands and toes and even her facial structure for they broken bones, but they healed. It's very resilient little girl you know Jeez. and even like her left eye was like opaque colored it glassed over because her left eyelid had been split i guess they had hit her so hard like her orbital socket was kind of out of place so someone had beat her so hard they cracked her orbital socket and actually split oh her gosh. eyelid so her eye never really oh. closed so anyway i'll tell you this just to tell you this little girl that came in and yeah. for me i had to remove my immense anger yeah uh, and, and and that wasn't even frustration it was like rage at this family, this father that brought me this, you know, and he was, he's like, yeah, there's something wrong with her, like with a snarl on his face. I didn't speak posh to you, but my interpreter, and I could tell the guy's face was body language, body language, no matter what language right, you speak. Yeah. It was a complete disdain. I think he wanted to give her to us, you know, the way he was like, yeah, here's a, you know, ah, my watch is broken. Can you fix it? Type oh of my thing, gosh, right? Yeah. And I was like, yeah. fuck. It, basically, it was like a burden to him. Jeez. So I had to remove myself from, <laughs> I had to like, not remove myself from the room, but I had to like quell this, rage yeah. ahead of me for this cut those emotions this out. guy yeah. that was doing that because i understood they working the host host nation by through and with you know understand their culture and that's just the way they believe that's the way this guy was brought up that's the way he believes i don't agree with it i don't think it's right but in order for us to continue to operate and get them on our side because we were gathering intelligence at the same time i had to handle this the right way right um and i, I was just like biting my tongue and i was like all right well, why does he think the devil's in her I mean, tell yeah. me that. You yeah, know, I understand her, whatever. And I'm treating her. And he goes, because she eats dirt. Hmm. So then, and, and that, and then you'll understand why I told you how much clinical training and medical stuff that we have is uh, I recognize it immediately. I go, oh my gosh, this girl is so abused, so neglected, so, so deprived from just basic human compassion. They don't feed her that her body is vitamin deficient. She has pica. Pica is a, is a, is okay. a, is a, uh, uh, it's a condition you get when your your body is deficient in vitamins, and you have this urge to eat dirt. Sometimes pregnant women get pica; they have this desire, like, "Man, I need." To eat. I feel like I, it's weird. I feel like I need to eat dirt. It's because they're vitamin deficient. Pregnant women get it because of the shift in the the RBC to plasma concentration, so they're vitamin iron deficient, basically. Okay. So this little girl had pica. She was so malnourished, you know, and that's wow. all it was. They just needed a feeder. Jeez. Um, so I was just like, I knew what it was right away. And I'm just like, mm, okay. So I started, I began treating the girl, treating her wounds, cleaning her up, you know, she's probably showing this little child 
you know, compassion for the very first time in her life, right? Wow. Uh, and then I give her a prescription because she had secondary infections from soft tissue injuries and, and, uh, and some vitamins as well and some, like, drinks, some things. And then I'm like, all right, how do I make sure this guy's just not going to sell this crap? You know? yeah. So I pulled him aside and, and to the best of my abilities without, like, grabbing him by the throat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, uh, <laughs> like, look, this girl has to have this. I'm, I'm going to be checking up on you. I will be back. You do not want me to come back and yeah. be upset. It was somewhat a veiled threat, kind of overt, you know, yeah, at the same yeah. time. And then I and I and our Terp, who was a local that we had hired, I'm sorry, and and he will be here. This is the guy. I said you need to make sure. So that's that's why I left it. And yeah. um, she did get better for the entire time I was there. I made sure I sent the Terp check on her. I saw her a couple more times after that. And she was doing better. Uh, I actually got to see her smile the last time uh, I saw her. You know, uh, she actually had a smile, which was beautiful. Wow. Um, that's incredible. But that, you know, you know, and, and I, I can look at it and I look back at that and, and it, it hit me so hard. Um, and I pray to God that little girl's alive. But, you know, the truth is she's probably, she might not be, you know. Yeah. Um, but that for me was immensely impactful. That was like a, a scenario where I had to figure out what was going on and try and hand it, not just through my medical training, you know, but I had to figure out through our mission statement and how we operate, like, okay, I need to make sure, because if I would have gone off on the guy, he was one of the senior, he was like the village elder. If it, it would have turned the entire village against us. It would have turned it, almost an entire region mm. against us, which, and the second, third order effects of that would have been, well, okay, I'm gonna let them plant bombs on your route. I'm gonna kill, you know, well, okay, well, hell, I'll help. You know what I mean? So you have to think. Right. Um, you gotta do some long-term thinking. Yeah. You know what I mean? You You're thinking just, like 12 steps ahead on the right, chessboard. Right, right. And, and that's what, that's the way I had to handle it. So it was uh, a real, real, real day I'll never forget. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, you've you've got this whole skill set that obviously you know you've got to use as a as a medic. But then on top of that, you're effectively you know working as a diplomat. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I I say it is like we're tactical diplomats. Yeah, you know what I mean. Which is, I mean, what I did in the military. Um, w- that's kind of what like like three and a half years ago I, I decided to go back to college. And what I did as a excuse me as as a as a Green Beret a, a diplomat. You know. Yeah. Um, I was like, that's why I chose the area of study I did. So I, you know, I got a master or a, a bachelor's in strategic studies and defense analysis, and then I per, I pushed it to the next step, and I just graduated uh, recently, a couple months ago, with um, my master's of arts in, in diplomacy with a concentration in international conflict resolution. So that's because awesome. I wanted to understand why do we do things the way we do? Because I'd seen national foreign policy fail mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, and really what I figured out was. It's just my ideas, you know, uh, is, uh, (laughs) you know, it's implementation of the policy. If you don't understand it, if you don't know, you get a presidential appointee or someone that thinks they know what they're talking about and then they don't know how to implement it. They don't understand the nature of the culture and the language and, you know, social cultural norms. uh, You know, you're not going to do that because some people, unfortunately, are too focused on this this buzzword. Another one, right, is policy. Oh, let's change policy. Let's write a policy for that. And not just within the federal government or local and state government, but even – you know, healthcare, even like even within the veteran community, veteran space or or you know, like, oh, our policies, this policy. Well, you know what? I, I think that's great. You know, people mm-hmm. say, oh, yeah, that policy means like, well, we have to follow that. But policy changes with the flip of a pen and people sometimes forget that. Right. And so as a special forces guy, you know, I we see the long game. We understand we have over 70 years of institutional knowledge because our, our foundings are within the Office of Strategic Services, you know, the OSS in World War II, and that's what started. That's where we began. You know, Colonel Aaron Banks started SF, and he was an OSS guy, you know. Yeah. You understand? So it's the long game. So um, it's a, this is a, a lesson I learned through my time in service is you affect a culture. Do you want to 
make a long-term impact, a positive one, then you need to understand it's going to take a long time and you need to affect the culture. You need to do it in the right ways. You need to do it effectively. You need to communicate to the people that you want to talk to and bring them together. You know, you, there can't be sides in that. You just mm. have to bring everyone together in a common umbrella and you, there has to be compromise. Um, there's always compromise because you have to do that in order to, to have any positive outcomes in, in, in what it is you want to do. Right. The long game and strategic management in that position is <clears throat> incredible because you're having to view the whole board, you know, not mm -hmm. just parts of the board. Well, King, you know, move this piece to this piece. You're actually looking at the whole entire board over a period of time. So many moves ahead because you're not just, you know, it's not like the grant unit. All right, guys. We're going to go on target, kill everything that moves. You know? like, yeah, I think well, we all picture like John Wayne Green Beret, you know, like yeah. it's there's it's, it's a I, different role. And, and I think where people fall short is contingency planning. Mm -hmm. Everyone assumes their plan is going to work. Right. You know, I love like Mike Tyson, one of the sayings, and it's a, it's a, a lot of people have said it where it came from. Who knows? Like everyone has a plan to get punched in the face. You know <laughs> That's what I mean? true. Yeah. But, so have your contingencies, yeah. you know, and, and unfortunately I, I, it's, I see it proliferate not just within the military, but now that I'm, I'm, you know, in the work I do now, I see it in the those that didn't serve. You know, whether it's the the civilian, quote unquote, civilian uh, market, whether it's uh, for profit or not profit. Right. Um, people think their ideas are the best ones. Yeah. You know, and and they don't really plan for failure. You know, have I a plan until you get punched in the face, right, and then you most, get punched in the face and you curl up in yeah, the fetal position yeah, and cry. Or crawl under a Humvee, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's uh, all connecting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's, that's, that's one of the things I learned and, and that transferred to everything I did as a, you know, through all my deployments. And I've, I've carried that lesson with me, you know, into what I do today. That's awesome. So two combat deployments to Afghanistan. Yes. And your, you know, your first one being the example you just gave of mm -hmm. that, you know, medical treatment of the right. young girl. What was that second deployment like for you to, to uh, all bad? Man. Um, that one was a little bit more, it was, and I don't want to, like, all my deployments, so, well, I've only shared, like, things are like, oh, man, that's horrible, that sounds so bad. Right. Uh, I, truth be told, there's just, not those moments I described, but some other moments during all my deployments have been some of the most joyous moments in my life, mm -hmm. you know, uh, second only to the births of the, my son's being born, and my grandson now. Right? Wow. Um, so, you know, I loved my job, I loved what I did. So the second deployment, it was a little bit different. I had a little bit more responsibility, and uh, um, <clears throat> it was, uh, yeah, very different because um, we, we did a lot more um, operating uh, in and around Jalalabad in the entire region, and our mission was a lot. You know, SF guys, that's what's cool, and I loved about being a, a Green Beret is I'm a Green Beret first. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm a medic, but I'm a Green Beret first. Yeah, yeah. but I'm also the, the senior sniper of the team, but I'm a Green Beret. But I'm also trained in some human intel stuff. Well, yeah, I'm a Green Beret first. You know what I mean? It's We wear a lot of different hats. And that, that deployment, I managed all of our op fund, like all of our money, everything we did. I was the guy that I'd have to go to Brogdon every four to six weeks and sign for like $600,000 cash or more or less, depending on what, what projects we had and wow. what it is we were doing. And it was cash. Like, that's, so accounting, that was accounting. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You know, I hated that. That was that was. Oh god, that was that was the worst part. About Sounds that. like a nightmare to me. Yeah, yeah it's money. uh, it's yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, that appointment was good. Uh, I I loved it. Um, and that was my last appointment because I knew after that appointment I had been picked up to go teach. So. When SF guys, you know, we have to come back. Not all of us, but some guys are able to get out of it. Uh, but you go back and teach, you know, and I believe it's our duty to carry on any knowledge you have. So at the Special Warfare Training Group, you know, the JFK Special Warfare Center in school. Mm -hmm. So guys will come back, SF guys, and 
teach in, under various capacities, depending on their specialty, depending on their MOS, what they did. So yeah, I was in 18 Delta, but I didn't go teach at the 18 Delta phase. I was the sniper for my team. So I went and taught at, uh, at Range 37 here at Fort Bragg at the, at the, as a sniper instructor. Wow. Um, so that's what I, and you know, I was coming back for that, but on that deployment, uh, I probably received my most significant injury. Uh, we were conducting a combat patrol. We were on our way to go knock on a door of a bad guy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. come, come to say hi. You know, it's just it's, Santa Claus it, is here. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I know, I know your lights are out. It's dark, but we're here. You know, one of those. I know you've been bad. You're getting cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we are on our way and, uh, we're crossing the danger area and, um, <clears throat> convoy was going across and i rode i rode an atv um you know the senior guys we always had on atv so there was only one guy on that team that had been on that team longer than me uh our team sergeant had come from outside the team but uh paul and i had been there forever you know on that team that was the only team i ever served on and uh and, and paul as well so we were just like you know the longer you're there the more you're kind of a dick uh, i'll be honest you know, not, you know, yeah this is hard right so paul and i were always doing that and it provided flexibility because we would fan out in open areas and as a sniper because sometimes you get to a better position for provide overwatch or whatever right so but when we cross the inner danger areas we go do it with a, an atv and, and dismounted force and we always work with afghans you know put an afghan face to the mission because our job as sf guys we go and we train locals and you know we try and work ourselves out of a job let's teach you how to do it right here's what we do how do you do it okay let's kind of marry them up but we're going to do it our way, but it's kind of your way. And, okay, we treat it, we worked ourselves out of a job because anything we do and train an Afghan to do, or, or not just Afghan, but anywhere in the world you find SF guys, that's one less soldier that has to be there. That's right. one less U.S. service member that has to be in that area. So, anyway, you, you conduct it, and uh, convoy was coming across. I stayed there, and we leapfrogged, and I was going to be the ATV and back, so we leapfrogged, you know. All right, you're bait first. Then right. I, then now it's my turn to be bait, right? We go back and forth. Fun job. Yeah. <laughs> as, as, I, as I pulled off, um, you know, uh, it was a command at IED. Command at IED, excuse me. Um, it was an Afghan vehicle that pulled up right next to us. So they, I was just one guy. They were not going to set it off for just one guy. Right. But when the Afghan vehicle came up with a bunch of dudes in it, that's when they set it off. But we were fortunate. And it only lowered her debt. Um, I was really close. It was close proximity. Kind of jacked me up a bit. Uh, rung their bell as well. Um, but the only one hurt that day uh, was me. Um, and that was when I lost vision in my left eye. I didn't lose my left eye. I have to wear a special prosthetic in my left eye that allows me to see. That's when my eyes aren't the same color. And, and the doctor was like, hey, it's not going to match. I'm like, I don't care. Whatever you need to do, man. Yeah. So <clears throat> that was um, probably, you know, and I, I, like I said, it was, I got my bell rung. Um, really, really bad shape. Um, looking back now from what I can remember, it was really hazy. But one of the guys came to me, Rod, you're all right. And I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. So I just gutted it out and continued mission because there was another ID that hadn't gone off that we identified at the front. It was just a long day, right? Yeah. Um, so that was that. And then shortly thereafter, I was involved in a couple other incidents where I got my bell rung again. Where, But they were, uh, um, one, I got hit by, ah, uh, oh, man, our Afghans uh, ran into me. <laughs> oh my we're, god! We're, we're driving through the uh, streets of Jalalabad, and an Afghan truck. You know, I go to pull a blocking position, and we'd all be supported by a, a fire truck because you know, we were like block. We was a time sensitive target. We're trying to haul ass out of Jalalabad to get to where we need to get because there's a bad guy there, right? Right. And they ran into me, and thank goodness their hood was level with the back of the Humvee or the back of the four wheeler. So I just went through the windshield. 
Um, <laughs> just just yeah, went through uh, the windshield. I went through the windshield, uh, but I had my helmet on, so hey, you know, it's all good. <laughs> uh, but I remember waking up. They're like, Rod, Rod, you okay? I'm like, oh shit, we gotta go. Yeah, you know, I heard on the radio, mm-hmm. and I'm like, let's go. So I, but then it was just bad. And then I was involved in a rollover where I fractured my maxilla, like the front part of my face, like the, my teeth. Oh my gosh. Um, in a ditch, we were chasing a guy, and I ended up in a ditch. And Jeez. anyway. A couple, you know, not not within about a four week period. So I had pretty three oh pretty significant uh, traumatic brain injuries, um, and and I was bad. I knew I was bad, but we were we were uh, we had about two months, six weeks left in the deployment, six seven weeks left. And I was like, I gotta stay. I gotta stay. I'm able to stay. You know, no one knew what was going on. I was a senior medic for my team, so I was self treating. I didn't even tell my junior. You know, the other eighteen Delta on the team. Uh, and I didn't. I just kept it to myself because I wanted to stay. Wow. And generally when I tell that story, people are like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I'm like, no, 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 it's definitely not, you know? <laughs> uh, and, I, and I try to relate it to where people can listen to that and understand like I'm nothing special though, by any means. I, you, they probably would have done the same thing. So uh, the best analogy I, I've been able to come up with is I want everyone to imagine they're eight years old. They're playing a game of kickball. Best kickball game you've ever had, man. You're just killing it. You're just, you're, you're doing, you're doing awesome this kickball game, right? And then all of a sudden you fall down and skin your knee. Do yeah. you, you run home crying to mama or do you get back up and keep playing kickball? Because you're having an awesome game. Get you back get back up, up and yeah. play kickball. Yep. That was all I did. That was it. <laughs> you know, different game. Yeah. Uh, but that's how I looked at Being it. Being a Green Beret, yeah. yeah. Did a little yeah. different. A little different yeah. game, but that's how I looked at it and nobody knew. You know, I was able to hide some of the stuff. Some of my, my, my injuries started to manifest themselves because I've, I've seemed to have made a career of brain injuries. Uh, to <laughs> Sounds TBIs. like it. Yeah. Um, but they started to manifest themselves in, in the subsequent years because brain injuries have a, a compounding effect. They're a cumulative effect, excuse me. Um, and they, I knew I was going to be a sniper instructor. So I was like, oh, I'll get better. I'll get better. But when, when I got to race 37, I was around explosives. Uh, you know, we were sh- around high pressure and small closing places. So I had a few more concussions while I was there. And of course I was still continuing to, you know, fight and train combatives. And, you know, we had some awesome, some dudes that could fight really well. So I would like spar them and it always kicked the hell out of me, you know, <laughs> uh, so I continued to down that path of like, yeah, I'm fine, you know, yeah. until finally something happened in front of some command and they were like, Dad, Rod, what the hell's going on? And I'm like, ah, they come to Jesus moment. I was yeah. like, hey, this is what it's been going on, you know, because I was, I was having seizures at one point. Oh, jeez. And uh, I always had about 30 seconds before I, would, I knew I was going to have a, and it wasn't, it weren't full blown. Right. You know, I just like, like close my eyes for a minute. You could tell you were about right. to have a seizure? Right. So okay. I would feel like someone put like a penny, like a penny mouth, like a copper taste in my mouth. And then I was like, sh- I had about 15, 20, 25 seconds before I had to get somewhere. Because I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. You know, because I timed it one time. And I'm like, okay, let me watch the clock. And then I, it was about that much time. So I'd be on the line teaching students and I'd feel it in you know, the sniper course. I'm like, hey guys, I'll be right back. I go sit in the truck, have a seizure, oh, wow. a little one, you know, small. I just close my eyes, nothing crazy. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to catch my breath. No one saw me. All right, cool. And I go back out. That um, sounds scary as hell. Nah, it's just stupid. Uh-huh. It's just dumb, man. <laughs> so um, that's just, nothing cool about Some that. Anybody listening, don't sucks. do that shit. Don't do that. Please, if, you, if something happens, tell somebody. <laughs> so anyway, I've been doing, living this lifestyle of just hiding it the best I could. And I was drinking more. I was just, ah, man, you know, I was just falling yeah. apart. The wheels were coming off my wagon. So then finally the command noticed something going on they sent me and uh, you know like a lot of athletes or pretty much anybody they have a bum knee and they keep ignoring the pain ignoring it ignoring it ignoring it and then they finally go get checked and they're like my gosh you, your ladder cruciate ligament and posterior cruciate ligament PCL PCL are, are 
are torn, you're like, oh, man, is that bad? They're like, yeah, it's that bad. Well, kind of the same thing for me, but brain stuff, right? And neurological injuries. You know, I knew I was having some balance problems. My speech was shifting quite a bit. Um, like even speech problems. Like a lot of people don't realize I go to speech therapy. You know, I'll tell everybody now, you know, I, I have to go to speech therapy. Um, I had to learn how to, not really learn how to talk again, but I had to learn. So before I speak, I'm trying to put the words together. You know, sometimes I'm not the best at putting the words together. You know, uh, um, so, you know, a lot of things were going on. And I got sent to the hospital. I was up there at the National Triple Center of Excellence. And that's when they were like, you know, they figured it out. That place is phenomenal. I mean, it's, it? I could yeah. never say enough good about it. But I left with 17 different diagnoses. Everything from um, I started developing Parkinson's, uh, the, the headaches I got. The, I mean, you just name it. I don't, you know, nothing special. Wow. There's, a, there's a lot of things going on upstairs for me. Yeah. Um, to include some of the prognoses. They're like, hey, look, you're looking at early onset dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, there's a lot of stuff, but it's fine, you know. Um, but it was when they read me that. And when I got my read on, like, hey, this is what we found. Uh, it's when they're like, hey, you can no longer perform your duties as a Special Forces Green Beret. We are now initiating medical retirement proceedings. Mm. And that's when I was like, oh, God, what the hell am I now? Yeah, I was a father, you know, I was a husband, uh, you know, hermano de many, whatever. But that was what I identified myself as. So, and then it, 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 was, it was a rough time in my life. So you, in a sense, lost your identity or part oh, of it. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. I think everyone goes through uh, that yeah. identity. Every, not just veterans, but it seems to, you know, I'm glad veterans are being more vocal about it. Um, but when you lose something so precious or something you've done your entire adult life, yeah, um, yeah, you go through that identity issue. And I think it's important for veterans and, and everybody, you know, not just veterans, but to remember look, when things change, you know, that's not all you are. Yes, you know, my service in the military helped create me, right. you know, and, and my my unique point and station in life, whatever. Um, but that's not all I am. I'm so much more. You know, I, I am not, I don't look at myself as, that's something I did that did not define me. You know, that's something in the past. I wholeheartedly believe that we are defined daily by our actions, not by a job you had or a rank or some award you got or who right. you know or no, man. is When you wake up every day, you are going to be defined by what it is you choose to do that day. You know, like, like that's, that's what it is. You know, you, you are defined by your actions on a daily basis. And if you live a good, positive life trying to make the world a better place, I, I try to do that the best I can, I think you will make a significant impact. Right. And the depth of those decisions leads to, you know, what your character is of seen course. as. You know? you know, I mean, you could have, like, the greatest career... And then some crazy stuff happens, and that's yeah. all you're going to be remembered for. Look at O.J. Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? God, I hate to bring that up, but yeah. look, you know, you could do, you could look at, find someone in. Well, look at some stuff even down south that went on with, you know, 7th Group down uh, south, you know? I mean, yeah. I know that story's painful to hear, but yeah, you know, I, it is. I had a buddy down there who was with them, and, you know, the, uh, all of 7th Group got stood down, you know, during yeah, that that's, moment. It's that's, painful. That sucks, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so anybody at any given time has has the opportunity to make positive or negative impact much right. like you know my squad leader hiding under the humvees all those years ago <laughs> we circle back once again yes <laughs> it's an important lesson yeah so you know mike i wanted to you know talk a little bit about transition but i, I also wanted to hit, you know hit the medical side just a little bit mm -hmm. you know that last deployment you had you know pretty difficult moment um oh yeah you're talking about the, the med camp we talked about all right yes, well damn yes, it we had to bring that up yes, i was trying I'm to slide sorry, by that no, no no it's good you can't let it go yeah i've, I've told the story a couple times yeah. um and 
All right. So, 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 so uh, ah, man. So we would do medical civic action projects, MedCap, CAP, right? And a lot of times it would provide us the opportunity to go on a, uh, a region of Afghanistan that was, well, I don't know any regions in Afghanistan that are like hospitable or like, hey, yeah, come on in. <laughs> you know, but they're like, okay, they're coming here to do this. That's what we tell them we're going to do. Right. And we would engage the local, any, if there were any local healthcare professional professionals in there, like, again, we want to work with the locals. Uh, talk with the village elders, get them involved so they they look good, like they're involved in bringing us there. It's like a big team building, community building, get them on our side, you know. But if we're in the area and there happens that we have some intel, some bad guys, one terrain feature over, we're probably going to come by. <laughs> we're probably going to knock on your door. The or, Easter Bunny's coming back. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, we're coming back. You know, yeah. so anyway, it was one of those instances, right? And uh, a lot of the medicaps we did, I... I um, <clears throat> As my career progressed, I would only we would you have to segregate who you treat, you know, children, women, men. Um, well, that particular day, I was I was always not that particular day. I was I was because of my status. I, I'll admit I I abused my status. I told my junior, I'm like, oh, I'm not teaching, I'm not treating any men. You take care of the dudes. I'll take care of the women and children. And he's like, oh, right, shut up, man. I, no. I, <laughs> so I flicked the booger on him, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So that day, I was treating children, and um, uh, we had a bunch of other medical. Uh, healthcare providers we had brought in, other U.S., uh, you know, like other uh, combat medics, and we had a, a couple of U.S. docs with us, and a few of the Afghan. That was one of the few times we had some Afghan uh, healthcare providers. It was great, great, great. Um, so they bring me, um, this woman comes in, and, and uh, she was with her husband, you know, and the only time you see them together would be like if there's a child. And so they bring me this little baby, and, you know, I had delivered babies in, here in the United States doing certain rotations down south. Uh, Afghanistan, I delivered it. So there, I could recognize the afterbirth, and there was a distinct smell. It's nothing gross. It's just like, oh, like, oh my gosh, this baby was just born. Right. You know, and the mother, you could tell, you know, with her, with what she was wearing, you could see some stains. You know, she was still bleeding, hemorrhaging. Um, so I was like, and, and we're prepared for that. You know, we are. We're always prepared. Um, so I was like, oh, my gosh, there's a baby, and the baby was blue. You know, it was very shallow breast. It wasn't getting enough. So we did what I had to do, took care of the baby. And I spent about 20 minutes on this baby, which is a lot of time for a Metcalf. You don't spend 20 minutes with any one patient. You don't because at any given time, you can treat anywhere, if you're doing well, anywhere from 50 to 60, 80 patients in one day, one right. provider. So that's how you make a significant impact. Working with a team, you're not by yourself. You have, it's a, it's a very well-oiled well machine if a Metcalf is put together and run properly. Uh, and that was one of the jobs. That was one of my jobs on the team was to set those things up. So anyway, I spent like 20 minutes with this child. And so at that point, I like I loved this child. Yeah. This was my baby. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I mean, you have to I, develop a special yeah, connection. Yeah, I, I, and, I, and everyone I've ever treated, I treated them like a member of my familia. You know, I was like my, my brother, my sister, my dad, my mom, my grandma, my grandpa, whatever. You know, it's like, hey, that's that's how I figured out how to love all my patients to treat them without any, you know, any uh, preconceived notions or thing I had prior. Right. Right. Um, so like I fell in love with this baby and I treated him and got him back up breathing. He was warmed him up. He was healthy, kicking, you know, the whole thing, you know, I was happy. And I swaddled the baby. We had these Winnie the Pooh, uh, blankets, you know, these yeah. little baby blankets swaddled him. And I just, I'm not lying, man. I got like fell in love with this child. <laughs> Fed him, helped teach, tell the mother. Mother was malnourished. She didn't have any milk, so we got a bunch of formula. I'm like, hey, here's a bunch of bottles. Here, we don't know who we're going to be back. 
you know, they knew who we were. And I told her, like, if, if you need anything, come to our compound in Jalalabad. You know, here's, you know, come to ask and whatever, right? Right. <clears throat> so then um, they leave and I continue treating the That was like my first patient of that day. And then I continued treating patients the rest of the day. Uh, we had some work that night, did some work, yeah. you know. Uh, and then the next day we were leaving town, right? Um, and as we're driving away, like I mentioned earlier, I was on ATV. I was like the trail ATV. And I saw a Winnie the Pooh blanket, the same ones, uh, in, in a window. It was kind of being used as a drape, like a curtain, you know, one of them little huts. And I was like, what the hell? So I had only given one Winnie the Pooh blanket away that day, and I was doing the children. So I'm like, shit, what the, what the hell? Why would, they, why would they use that blanket? You know, in my mind, right. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. I pulled over real fast. You know, we were, we were getting ready. I mean, I, 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 I could catch up. You know, I was like, I, I have to check on this, you know. Um, so I pull over real fast, and I, I go into the, the little, little, uh, little hut right there. And I see the mother and father sitting there side by side. They look at me. They recognize me. They, they, they remember me from the day prior. And they just, they just looked at the ground. And then uh, I looked over in the corner, and I saw this little figure swaddled in, in their cloth. You know, they, they, wow. they, with their traditions, they have to bury the, you know, there's a, you know, following their, their traditions. Right. Uh, I saw the baby just there, you know, on the ground in the corner. Jeez. You know, not moving, not nothing. And, you know, nothing had to be said. Nothing needed to be said. Nothing could have been said. You yeah. know, um, so, uh, you know, in that moment I was like, not that I ever thought like, oh, I'm the big powerful American. No, man, you know, we just do the best we can. But in that moment I have, I don't remember feeling as hopeless as I was. Mm. Wow. I mean, it was just immensely, man, it was just, I don't even, I, I don't have the words, yeah. you know, to describe what I felt. I just got back on, I just walked around, walked out, got back on the ATV, which was running right outside the hut because uh, they were right by the road. Uh, it was a long, long drive back to the compound that day. Yeah. Yeah, and that's another one of the you know, little ones I see at night when I close my eyes. Right. Wow. Yeah, it's it's amazing because, you know, when you think about these scenarios with especially special operations guys, you know, you're always kind of picturing like these, you know, big badass dudes that go kicking down doors and, you know, taking you know, taking lives where they need to be taken. And, you know, that's kind of the public's view of special forces, but it's so much more than that. There's so many, you know, specialties. And, you know, within that, you know, the, the you know, the job is to save lives, you know, within what you're doing is 18 Delta. And so it's, I can only imagine how hard it is when things don't go well. Um, you know, and you did your best in that scenario and, you know, I'm sure you even said it, you know, no regrets in that scenario. Yeah. You <clears throat> did what you had to do. Yeah, I, I, I consider it a, 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 again, I keep using the word blessing, but that's, that's the best word I can come up with to have been provided with the opportunity to be in that moment in that time. And, and I'm saying I was the best person for it, but I had the opportunity to do right. that. And I think people overlook opportunities every single day. You're provided an opportunity every day to do something. Yeah. What do you do with it? You know, mm, yeah. um, I could have very easily not done that. And, and I, I'll admit it. I mean, there was probably that baby could very well be alive had someone else been there instead of me. You know, those are things that our minds do and mm. think. That, and it's not regret. It's just it's just how I just how I process this stuff and get right. through it, you know. And, and um, it's uh, it's it's, uh, it's part of growth, man. You know, yeah. we all we all face with adversity, everything. And there's one thing like uh 
you know, it's funny. This podcast, I feel like we're just carrying on the, con- the conversation you and I have been having for like two two days now. Yeah, right? yeah. But you know, like we were talking about it yesterday or day before. Excuse me. Was like, you know, everyone's facing something. Everybody like the difference between pain or like pain and suffering, right? Right. Everybody's in some form of pain. Everybody is, man. Someone's everyone's facing something, whether it be physical, emotional, mental, so whatever, whatever, right? So everyone's experiencing pain. If you are suffering. If you feel you are suffering, it's because you choose to suffer. Mm. I was in, the, so after I left Walter Reed, uh, I got sent to a two week inpatient treatment program. In, I was in another hospital, but this was for a, to handle my post traumatic stress and chemical dependency. It was inpatient, locked in, locked doors, no shoelaces in my shoes type of facility. And I'm not ashamed of that. Yeah. Um, it's what I needed right. uh, to process and carry a lot of these shadows that I, you know, whatever I have, right? And I think um, it's important for people to know that sometimes you need that. No, you do. I yeah. do. I'm, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not embarrassed of it. Right. I'm not. Which is why I'm glad you're saying that. Yeah. It, it's. It's. It is. But it was there when I was in treatment. And one of my doctors, Doctor Umar Latif. I love that guy, man. <laughs> I mean, I still stay in touch with him. You know, I reconnect with him recently. Um, he told me he goes, Rod, look, I know you're in pain. You know, at that point, I was dealing with a lot. I just you know, whatever. I've been. I've had a lot of physical injuries and a lot of moral injuries, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, he said, Rod, if you're suffering, it's because you choose to do so. Mm. And it, for me, it was, it was like a turning point in in my life, you know? I was like, oh, shit, he's right. Yeah. You know, at that point, you know, the pain and adversity and whatever I was dealing with, all my obstacles had were controlling me. Right. I never fully accepted onus of my situation. I never fully faced it. Mm. I, I couldn't face it, you know, and that's a, I couldn't fight it because I hadn't accepted it. And that's a fight only I can fight. No yeah. one else can fight. People can love me and they can want to fight it for me, but they can't. They can't do it. That's something I have to do. But it was in that moment I was like, holy crap, I'm being controlled by my situation, mm. by the bumps, bruises, and baggage I carry around, whatever, right? right. Um, and I was like, holy crap, that's how I'll fight it. That's my new challenge. That's another challenge. So I'm like, all right, cool, let's, let's do this. And it changed. I mean, just it was a huge reset for me in my mm-hmm. life. You know, because it was in that moment when I stopped being so gosh damn judgmental like everybody is. I was like, <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, wow, I don't know what that guy's dealing with or that girl or this child or this right. man or I don't know what they're dealing with. I don't know. You know what? I'll listen to you. I'm not going to judge you. I may not agree with you. I have a healthy conversation with you, but I am not going to judge you. Mm. I'm not I'm not in your skin, man. I'm not in your head or your heart. Um, so, you know, that that was huge for me, you know, and and. The, you know the whole to the the me not being ashamed of of having post traumatic PTS and yeah. fighting you know fighting it every day uh, I'm not ashamed of it because you know I'm human I care I'm a compassionate person right. you know I wonder at what time it became bad in our society to feel you know if I didn't feel anything for all the stuff I've seen or done or witnessed or whatever I think I'd probably be a sociopath. <laughs> like seriously you know yeah it, it's weird because they do kind of in a way train us to be sociopaths you know i feel like when we get in it's like i know my dad just kind of like the you know not to hate on my dad because my dad's an incredible man and great wonderful guy but he was always like hey you know like men don't cry like mm-hmm. that's how i was raised mm-hmm. you know and it was very simple and by the time i was 17 or 18 i 
cried a lot. <laughs> so I disappointed him. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like it's that kind of old school culture, you know, very militaristic viewpoint. And they kind of train us in a way that desensitizes us. And then it's but, you know, then when we actually need those emotions, they're like nowhere to be found. It's right. Like we're just think, bottling them up. I mean, the, the job we're performed to do sometimes requires you to separate it. Definitely. But yeah. I think we need to address it. And, yes, and of talk course. About and bring it up. So. And the transitional aspects of that, too. And and it's it's a normal human emotion. And, you know, there's been, there's two things I'm talking about. So, um, have you, I I hope everyone thinks this, and I hope you do too. Just think about it for a second. So, you know, like when you hear people talk or someone's speaking or giving a speech or just in general casual conversation, and if they're talking about something that's near and dear to the heart or it makes them sad or they get compassionate and they start, they'll tear up or choke up and they'll like Mm -hmm. almost cry. What do they always do? They say, I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. Now, that's always, everyone's like, yeah, I've seen that. Hell, everyone's probably done yeah, it at yeah. some point, right? I want people to think about it from the other side. Uh, at what, has anyone ever apologized for being happy? No. It's, it's a normal human emotion, right? Yeah. If I was like, I'm sorry, I'm so damn happy right now. No. Unless it's uh, inappropriate, but you uh, know what I mean? It, no, you've never done that. It's a normal human emotion. So to feel compassion or hurt and to acknowledge it, that's normal, man. You know, that's that's called being a human and giving a damn, you know, uh, if you don't, then, hey, man, you got your own path. You got your yeah. own things. But I, I hope people see that in that light and be like, it's OK to feel. And I'll be honest, I am stronger now because I can acknowledge it. It's not going to weak. I'm not weak. So, yeah. you, you know, vulnerability is a foundation of human connection. If you want to connect to others or you want to be able to do something com- with driving passion you have to be vulnerable vulnerable to mm-hmm. do so vulnerability is not weakness everybody's no. vulnerable you know i think in our current uh society or, or you know people like nowadays they want to be like oh i'm a i'm a viking or i'm a wolf pack or i'm a whatever you know like oh i'm like yeah. man you know what i'm got a beard I'm a, yeah i got a beard yeah uh <laughs> but uh you know mike I mean? will tell you from a special forces group perspective that that does not make you a badass <laughs> the beard does not make no, you bad but you know, it's it's uh, it's it's more than that. I, I like to right. think I'm a stronger. I'm a very compassionate, caring individual. Very. But I yes. know what I bring to the table. Yes. You know, if you want to bring something to me, okay, I'm gonna do what I got to do. And this this uh, this it's almost like this. Uh, actually, I was talking to the Task and Purpose guys about this uh, earlier in the year. Mm. It's almost there's like a cool a cool to be cruel mentality. Yeah. It's cool to be cruel, like, oh, I'm going to ram it here. You know, uh, no, it's never been cool, man. I don't think it's <laughs> ever been cool to do any of that shit. Right. You know? No. I'm not a, a blind, I'm not a blind aggression guy. Every time I ever did something, it wasn't like, oh, I'm some berserker running. No. I'm a, I, I will get far more done with focused violence than I will with blind aggression. Right. Yeah, and that's just kind of how we see. But things. that's the that's the name of the game, in the especially in those precision units that are getting the job done. You know, with that applied violence, that precise mm-hmm. attack, that you realize that you know all that outside extra stuff doesn't lead to you accomplishing the mission, right? Yeah, it's that spearhead that attack. You know, mm-hmm. where you're being precise. So you know, one of the things you were saying, my Rod, that you know, real hit really hard home was, I remember I was giving this. Uh, not to talk too much about myself, but I had this gallery out in Austin and, um, you know, and we're having this gallery and, uh, you know, I had like some of my old, you know, World War II veterans, the prints up because we were raising money for this gallery we were, we were about to do, um, you know, me along with the Zero Films guys. So Nate was there, Nate Boyer. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And, love the guy. Yeah. Love him to death. Um, he's 
probably texting me, joking me with me about my crap earlier. Um, <laughs> yes, we recorded like forty minutes of this podcast before we realized that we had actually I had actually not hit record on like thirty of it. So a shout out to myself for being in a dumbass. So so um, anyways, I want people to know how amateur I can be, dude. So it's important. Um, so anyways, we're in this moment, and I'm like, I was talking about um, Paul Merriman. This uh, Iwo Jima veteran who, you know, talked about like the most, I saw him get emotional one time in the talk about Iwo Jima and he had been shot in the head mm-hmm. and blown up by a pineapple grenade and all these, you know, normal things that happen in <laughs> combat. So, badass, um, is yeah. so he's, so he's, you know, and then he goes on to own a $240 million company after the Marine Corps. So, you know, typical stuff. So he, he does all this and he's talking about, you know, in the worst day I had on Iwo Jima does not compare to watching my wife go to Alzheimer's. He said, I was married for 62 years and I started to lose her and I would watch her fight me and come back into the building and, you know, try to scratch at my eyes and and fight me. And she would get lost on a freeway out in Houston and call me up crying. And he goes, there's no day in Iwo Jima that compared to that, to watching my, the one I love the most fade. And as I'm giving that talk, like I'm tearing up, man, like, yeah, you know, pretty powerful, heavy. Man. And then I'm watching all these like, you know, badass, like, you know, seal dudes and like, you know, green berets and stuff. And they're all tearing up too. And I just, I remember like, you know, Nate still teases me about this, but I pounded my chest and I was like, I want you to feel my heart. And so Nate's always like, I want to, I want you to taste my heart. I want you to <laughs> smell my heart. You know, like, so he like teases me pretty hard. But mm. in the moment, you know, like he could tell how much that meant to me. Yeah. You know what I'm tearing up? I didn't give a damn, and I, I will never apologize to, for tears that are spent on this project, mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, good. Well, I'm proud of you for doing that, man. But it took a little while to get there, man, because mm-hmm. I was raised in a culture where, you know, it was kind of seen as a weakness, and now to get to there, like, to see, like, hey, man, it's okay. Yeah. And when you're passionate about something, like you're saying, when mm-hmm. you're vulnerable about something, <clears throat> right. there's power in that. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, that's, that is an important impact, and off of the back of that, I wanted to read this passage. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we've got Mike's incredible book here, World <laughs> War One British Poets. Yeah, keep it on my desk. Yeah. And it's it's important. Um, I wanted to read this poem here, and it is called The Target. I shot him, and it had to be one of us. Twas him or me, couldn't be helped, and none can blame me for you would do the same. My mother, she can't sleep for fear of what might be a happening here to me. Perhaps it might be best to die and set her fears at rest. For worst is worst and worry's done. Perhaps he was the only son. Yet God keeps still and does not say a word of guidance anyway. Well, if they get me, first I'll find that boy and tell him all my mind and see who felt the bullet worst. And ask his pardon if I durst. All's a tangle, here's my job. A man might rave or shout or sob. And God, he takes no sort of heed. This is a bloody mess indeed. Um, I just read that for like the fourth time. <laughs> and I have chills. Um, because, you know, I, I think... Unless you understand World War One and like the, the, how dramatically terrible that war was. You know, you don't realize like it was at a time where, you know, men got to the end of the war and they were like, you know... It's not even almost 
worth is it worth it like you know all this combat all the death it was just persistent Ivor Ivor Gurney was the the author for that he was from Gloucester um you know at first he tried to enter into the military and he got held back because of you know some what they saw as mental deficiencies and then he joined and got sent to France and um you know experienced some of our worst battles probably seen in the history of mankind you know in those in that day and age where technology was meeting innovation and innovation is meeting flesh and bone and blood and all of a sudden you've got these you know horrifying crater of the moon type battles and you know that that passage is so powerful to me uh because it makes me think about what we're talking about here Mm -hmm. which is art yeah art and the healing capabilities of art obviously igor was igor was struggling yeah and that gave him release he obviously Mm -hmm. Didn't suffer in the writing here. <laughs> no, no, he, he's he was definitely decent. good. He's <laughs> yeah. definitely good putting yeah. the words together. There's yes, about that. I, th- I think it's interesting that you picked that that book. So, you know, I, I, you know, I gave you the book today. Hey, man, I'd like you to check this out. I keep it on my desk, and 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 it's very, it's immensely powerful for me. You know, and that's like actually one of my favorite passages. I think is. I wish you yeah, guys are like, God dang, Tim, are you in my head? What, what, how did you pick that one, right? Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah. So art. I mean, what, what Eva was able to do. Uh, was profound so i got exposed to art when i was in the hospital and uh melissa walker god love this woman uh she's the one who introduced me to art and i don't know how she had the patience to do so um <laughs> so it was part of the it was part of the uh, treatment protocol and i was like she's all right we're gonna work on art therapy and i was like what <laughs> what the what i don't know what, what do you mean? I, I think lady I do you know what i, I did I, I'm like, wait, wait a minute you know and i'm like oh my god is this some hippy dippy stuff <laughs> Oh God! Can I pretend to be sick? You know, and but you know I'm a good soldier, so I'm like, all right, I'll follow through. I don't want to cause any waves. This, this poor lady. Right. Um. So what you do is you paint a mask and a collage. And the second I started to do that, and it's 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 art for me. It's it's a message to yourself the way she tells it. And so when you're painting this mask, it's like you're looking yourself in the face. And uh, I got them up. When we're done here. I'll show them to you. They're in the other room. Um, it, uh, it's like you're staring at yourself and you're able to tell yourself things that you couldn't find the words for. Mm-hmm. You're able to process things you feel that you don't have a name for. Wow. Um, and you're able to look at yourself kind of in the mirror, um, when sometimes that's even just hard to do normally. Mm-hmm. And that just blew my mind, you know, took my blinders off and I saw the, the immense um, power of art, you know, and then it even expanded even further to where I realized that art is pretty much everything we do. Yeah. Um, and everyone is an artist in some form or fashion. And that's when I realized that everything I, I'm a very, pa- anyone that's ever met me or talked with me, like, I like to think my, like pick up on how passionate the person I am. I just, I just, you know, I just, I'm a very passionate person, and I realized that all the things that I was good at in my life at that point, I was it was my art. It was me expressing myself through art, and it could have been anything. So I was a sniper for a long time, and when I was there, that was, you know, a lot of artists don't like to hear this, but uh, <laughs> um, I was an artist. How dare he talk that way about guns? Uh, <laughs> I know, uh, but you put me behind, you know, a scoped rifle and, and the, or as a spotter or whatever. I, it was an art. I, yeah. I threw everything at it and I just didn't it it was just that was my art and um, even being and an even instructor within an that instructor too and in medicine that yeah. was an art um 
working, training, speaking, you know, I had to learn a few other languages that was an art. Uh, and then it, it just, it just grew. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it art is a beautiful thing. Art is a form of communication. You know, we have cave paintings that date back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to prove that even before the written word. Um, and art has an immense power and it has the ability to convey a thought, share a message, express emotion, um, that, you just can't do sometimes with words or, or something. So it it's incredibly powerful. It's, uh, it provides a catharsis for the artist as well. If you look at some of our greatest artists, you know, look at what they were going through in their life at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to use, I love Edgar Allan Poe. I love his readings. I like to Oh read. my gosh, that's I, my favorite. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we are the same person. Uh, yeah, you're just better looking. Uh, <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you look at what that, what that man was going through, struggling in his day-to-day life. He was able to craft stuff, for me anyway, that I read it. I read it very slow. I love to read like yeah. a page and try and figure out where he was in his mind and what he was thinking and That's really cool. what he meant. Wow. Um, and uh, it's, it's amazing what you're able to do. Uh, Picasso, uh, mm. you know... Uh, you know, Da Vinci even. You look at look at these yeah. immensely powerful artists and I'm gonna go as far back to, to say look at Aristotle, look yeah. at Socrates, look what look what they did. That's an art. Right. That was art. So it it, it just blew my mind on what art I, I had I had, you know, corralled art into this you know, uppity crowd, like, oh, you know, hey, that's uh, with a French hat and a little mustache and, <laughs> you know, paint, paint on canvas. But, you know, as, as immensely powerful as it is, and it, it allowed me to appreciate, I was, I was agnostic to art. I didn't yeah. really think it was anything until that time. And, you know, it pushed me into practicing my own art and talking art, you know, and with, yeah, it's just crazy. And, and that's very interesting that you, uh, you know, made the point about Edgar Allan Poe because, you know, he is one of my favorite of all time, if not my favorite. In fact, I was on, you remember Jake Phillips. I was yeah. on his podcast called The Culture of Bumpkin. Yeah, no, is, I, I, yeah. I, I listened to it. Oh, do you? <laughs> I listened to yours. Actually. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I researched it. Before you came to my house, I'm like, all right, let me get everything I can. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm a little scared now. <laughs> if you see, if you hear the, if you hear it just cut, you'll know what happened. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, I, you know, I was Annabelle Lee, which was very powerful for me. But, you know, reading that passage was an incredible experience. But, you know, it's funny. I wonder where the advent changed if, like, the Renaissance man was a strong dude, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. George Washington had, like, a thousand horses shot out from under him. You know, don't quote me on that, guys. But, you know, he had a <laughs> lot of horses shot out. He was a general, you know, yeah. like an mm-hmm. incredible warrior. Dudes who would, like, you know, put us to shame nowadays, you know, or, like, the ultimate philanthropists mm-hmm. were, you know, learning ten languages, inventors, warriors, yeah. all these things. Now that's, you know, kind of seen like, oh, you're soft because you like that. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Yeah. It's, but truly, you see the healing power. You've seen it yourself mm-hmm. in what you're doing now. I mean, you've seen it in President George W. Bush and yeah. what he did in you. I mean, yeah, it, dude, it, I would have never, I never knew he was an artist. Man I know he's intelligent. I had no artist. idea. Yeah. Oh my God. It's just crazy. I've, I don't know how many I love conversations your painting. I've had with him. Like me and him talk art. I, ne- who knew I never thought I would ever have <laughs> these long, drawn out conversations with President George W. Bush on uh-huh. art and what it means and how impactful it is. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, and it's one of those things where you, that stereotype exists, though. I remember being in, um, it was, I was right outside of Dallas-Fort Worth in this town called uh, Glen Rose. And Glen Rose is right next door. That's actually where Chris Kyle was killed on the range um, out there. But 
Glen Rose, Texas is this beautiful, small, little quaint town, a lot of cowboys. I was running down through the middle of town, and I'm like, I was talking about this one piece to this older gentleman. He was wearing a cowboy hat, and, you know, looked like he'd just gotten off his horse. And he's with his wife, and he's like, yeah, he's like, I'm like, man, this piece is really amazing. I start talking about this artist, you know, and like, you know, she's really talented. She's really great. He goes, huh, that's funny, because actually this is an 1865 piece by Herman Johnson. And I was like, wait, what? And this dude was right. Like, he knew the exact piece. <laughs> and here I am, like, prejudging this dude. Yeah, like, yeah, this dude yeah, doesn't know anything. Maybe, yeah. Tell me about horses. Maybe you'll yeah, know about, yeah. like, farming. This guy knew way more about that photographer than, like, I, or that artist than I knew. And it was funny because it was like, he, he obviously, like, you know, you, you kind of judge people in that. But art is a very powerful thing, mm-hmm. you know, and it be, can bring us peace. Yeah. You know, so I want to trace that to, you know, your your time in being painted, you know, by <laughs> the man who sent you to war. Yeah. What was what was that experience like? Um, well, you know, Portraits of Courage, uh, President George Bush's, uh, George W. Bush's uh, collection of paintings. Um, you know, it's uh, it's if, if you don't have the book, uh, go out, check it out. There's a plug for the boss there. Uh, go out and buy the book, Portraits of Courage. And he selected veterans that he it's beautiful that he had a that he knew. Um, so it was his third art instructor, a gentleman by the name of Cedric Huckabee, a phenomenal artist in his own right in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, President Bush was like, hey, man, I, I wanted to, I need something different. I need, I need to do something different. And it was Cedric Huckabee that said, well, why don't you paint the faces that nobody knows? And mm-hmm. immediately the boss, I mean, he's spoken extensively about this. Uh, he was like, oh, I'm going to paint the vets. So he sat down and he chose, uh, you know, 98 images uh, of us um, to paint. And wow. mine was like one of the first ones he painted because uh, I have a personal friendship with the gentleman. I mean, it's crazy to think that, but um, he's a friend. I mean, he's a close friend. He's a, I mean, we all love him. Uh, you know, shame on you if you don't. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I have a phenomenal connection with the man. Um, knows my family. I, I don't. Anyway, yeah, I don't have to come off all braggadocious and stuff. But he's a very close friend of mine. And uh, so he sat down and painted him. And what he did was he during several events, he holds two events a year uh, with wounded veterans, and that was how I finally met him in 2014. Uh, there's a bike ride at his branch in his home, and then there's a golf tournament he holds in Dallas, and uh, Every one of us had participated in one of those events. And what he did was he, it was a passion project of his. It was a secret project. And what he did was uh, he, they took stock footage from all the photos and, and videos. And then he chose a, vi- a, a image that he liked and he painted that. So my image, I remember that exactly where he got my image because I had to do like a, a little interview thing for the, for the Bush Center. Yeah. And I remember going there, and I was like, man, I got to buy a nice shirt. And Men's Warehouse had a $5 shirt. I bought the $5 shirt. <laughs> That's the shirt I was wearing when I did the, uh, I did the interview, you know. Oh, yeah. And I was like, holy crap, I know exactly where he got that image. Um, mm. But he was painting for – he. no one knew he was doing this um, outside of his family and his close staff. And uh, it was big pile collecting up in his, his art studio in Dallas. And um, – I remember the first time he told me was in uh, December of 2000, oh my gosh, 2017, 16, 2016. Um, he was like, I saw him. We were up at the, uh, I do a lot of events with him, spent a lot of time with him, guy. And we were at the Eisen at the, uh, at the air, what's the aircraft carrier in New York City? I forget, Independence. Uh, oh, geez. Anyway, we were yeah. up there and uh, we were, at, that's when he was announcing he was uh, going to co-chair the Invictus Games of 2016. 
Uh, also, it was 2015, excuse me. So December 2015, he was announcing he was co-chairing with Prince Harry, uh, Prince Harry's Invictus Games. So it was this big event, and he had me up to go up there, and I was talking. He comes up. He's like, hey, Rod, how's it going? I go, how are you doing, Mr. President? And he's like, I just want to let you know I just finished painting your photo, painting you. And um, I had been in the studio, me and him had talked art. I, yeah. I was like, I, I didn't know what to say. I'm like, uh, 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 he's like, yeah, you know, I, I just finished it. I'm like, um, I, I didn't know what to say. Yeah. And he was like, don't worry, your mom will like it. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> and so since then, that's where I've been. Wow. Like, like that's where I, I, I'm still in that moment. I don't know. Wow. What it, I don't know how to, I can't, I can't put it. Like, it's such an incredible mm-hmm. honor and uh, definitely undeserved honor. Uh, humbling uh, to have that man paint, yeah. paint me. So he painted it a bunch of us. And what's really cool is I hope everyone goes out and buy the book because it's the number one selling art book of all time which is kind of cool wow that is uh, really cool what he did was he, he wrote an essay about some of us in there so i urge people to buy the book mm-hmm. you can go on amazon or wherever buy it you know um but download the audiobook yeah because then it's the boss's present oh that's reading so it. cool so what you do is you wow. open a page and you look at the art the image and then you listen to him tell the story about it and it, it comes alive it's amazing but wow. I, I have to warn everybody there's some immensely powerful stories in there so prepare to feel Wow, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, I even think the technique that he uses is pretty fascinating. You know, his brush strokes and his shading techniques are pretty incredible. I oh, mean, he is. But it's it's not gifted. it's not stereotypical of what you would expect. It's, it doesn't look like a standard portrait. It's very different. Yeah, it was actually Winston Churchill that inspired him to paint. He was reading really? uh, wow. Churchill's painting as a pastime because Winston Churchill painting. He was mm. like, "Well, hell, if that guy can paint, I can too." <laughs> and he's a better painter than Winston Churchill. <laughs> you know. Well, Winston Churchill was drunk most of the time. Too. <laughs> Well, the boss has been sober a long time. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, uh, that's funny. So, yeah, it was funny. So, like, President Bush, uh, it was like him and I both quit at the same age at 40. Really? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's powerful, man. And kudos to you for quitting. You yeah, know, it just hit five it's years. Hard, man. Yeah, yeah, five years. Yeah. No, I'm good, man. I'm, yeah. I have a moment. I've, and I'm not against drinking. Some people can do it. I just know this ombre can't and shouldn't. You yeah, know, I yeah. can't do it. Um, So, uh, yeah, no, I'm good. Wow. Man. So, that all leads to, you know, what you're doing now. Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation. I guess it leads there. I don't know yeah. how I got here. I'll, yeah. I'll be honest. People, I, sometimes people are like, hey, Rod, I want to do what you do. And I'm like, I don't know what it I don't is. Know I, do. I don't know how, I, sure got how I got here. You know, like, I think I might have said already, you know, sometimes I end up in rooms and I get these moments of clarity where I'm talking with people or people presenting to me or whatever, you know, uh, and I'm like, how the hell did I get here? You know, who let me in this room? You yeah. know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I have the undeserved honor of being the president and chief executive officer of the Global War on Terrorism uh, Memorial Foundation. And we are the congressionally designated nonprofit that is tasked with building a national global war on terrorism war memorial in Washington, D.C., alongside, you know, the Vietnam Wall, the Korean War, uh, Korean war Memorial, World War II Memorial, somewhere up in there. Um, I'm glad you stated it so eloquently because I often get asked, they're like, so, like, which, like, which memorial? And I'm like... No, the, the, the memorial. And they're like, wait, so, so wait, uh, which, which the, and you're like, yeah. no, the, in like DC, <laughs> that memorial. Yeah. That's our like national, mall, our like, national memorial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of be. a big deal. Dude. So we had to actually, uh, change or be exempt from federal law. There's a law in the books that said, uh, it's called the commemorative works act of 1986. And it says that a, uh, a war has to be over for a period of 10 years in order for a national war memorial to even be considered. Now, personally, I think that's a horrible idea. Right. It was, it was written in 1986, which was, you know, uh, Congress's knee-jerk reaction to the dedication of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial mm. in 1982. 
Right. Because that had never been done before. You know, they're like, oh my gosh, this just, ha- well, we need to, you know, and that was, they did that in like a three, little over three years, which is amazing. Yeah. So now there's a lot of rules and regulations. It's a 24 step process. I mean, there's, it, you guys can do the math. It happens in DC. Anything, anything inside that beltway has got some procedure to it. Right. right. So anyway, so we had to exempt ourselves from that. So then uh, I'm not one of the founders. It was a group of like minded patriots that came together. Uh, and then because of, uh, I ran into them at an event and they approached me to join the board in, in, uh, 2016 and you know, like anything, anytime someone approaches me, Hey Rod, I want to help. I'm like, all right, what are you doing? What do you do it? I need to see this. I need to see this. Yeah, everyone should be judicious on what you involve yourselves in. Right. And they checked out, man. It was, they were legit. And I'm like, I'm on board. What do we got to do? Well, we got to pass a law. We got to submit a bill. Okay. So then in, in, uh, in, uh, early part of 2017, we submitted a bill on uh, bipartisan support um it uh, passed it went through the house and senate in just short of six months it was amazing and it's uh, because it's a nonpartisan issue i don't even like the word bipartisan that assumes their sides right. it's a nonpartisan issue and president trump signed the national global war on terrorism war memorial act in august of 2017 which officially handed us the foundation the foundation the mission because at that time anybody could have done it but then we became the congressionally designated nonprofit to build to liaise, to establish, to fundraise, to everything. We're the ones, we're the only ones that are going to do it. Wow. Um, and then in 2018, uh, we had some changes in the foundation. And then uh, I took over as president CEO um, because in 2018, it was a great idea, great idea. Oh, man, yeah, let's do it. Everyone's behind it. Yeah. Well, now we got action on this. How are mm. we going to do this? Now we got to do it. I'm like, uh-oh. Um, and like I said, it's an undeserved honor, I believe, uh, for me to be in this role. And yeah. uh but there are so many complexities, right? It's, it's a very dynamic environment, yeah. um, and I've learned a lot, and there's a lot more I need to learn, and I'll be honest. So that's when, uh, after I took over in the foundation, that's when I started to build a team mm. capable of succeeding. You know, there's three things I look for in building the team. Um, I think, you know, I've talked about this already. Uh, three attributes that I've looked for. Uh, ability. You know, I think everyone's going to want to support, but for certain levels, are you able to? You know what I mean? Right. I, everyone can help, but, you know, if I get a call from someone, hey, put me on your your board, I'm like, well, can you be on the board? What are you bringing to the table? You know, you, maybe there's a different position for you to help us. So ability. The second thing is credibility. Are you the right person? Some people don't work well with others. That's not what we're looking for. I'm a quality over quantity guy. You know, that's a soft truth. That's, that's how I was trained. That's how we did business. That's how, as long as I'm running the foundation, that's how we're going to continue to do business. Right. Quality over quantity. The third thing is, and it is, if you're looking at as pillars, it's probably my center pillar, uh, would be humility. Do you understand mm-hmm what this mission is about. Do you understand why we're doing this? Mm. You know, um, do you understand? This is not an opportunity to stand next to something shiny so you can get some of that glimmer on you. You know, mm. if you're part of the team, you're going to work. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to contribute. You heard me talk about earlier, Adam. I respect everyone's accomplishments in the past. I, I love everyone for what they've done. Um, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm a non-judgment individual. But what are you doing today? Right. How are you going to help? Yeah. What are your ideas? When people say, hey, Rod, I want to help, I ask them why. Yeah. And, and people can kind of, if most people have a reason why, yeah, you know, uh, and, and then I ask, well, what are you going to do if they haven't got to that point in their yeah. mind thinking, Hey, this is what I can bring to bear. Then maybe they're not the right person. Right. You know, and those three ability, credibility, humility, they're all built on a foundation of trust. Yeah. So if you look at that team on our website, you know, www.gwotmf.org and just check out the team, you know, we got some phenomenal individuals and you'll look at that team, look at everyone on there and one thing I've learned, you know, a lot of people have said it before, I'm going to say it now, but 
I make sure I'm not the smartest person in the room and I make sure there's, yeah, I, chances are I don't have the best plan. Yeah. You know, but I'll listen to some people, you know, so that's that we started to build a team and that's kind of where we're at right now. Well, that's powerful too, because, you know, anytime that I've, you know, I've interviewed quite a few guys, obviously through the veterans project and those who are, um, you know, leading in different arenas, you know, from world war two, Vietnam, Korea, guys who've owned, you know, massive businesses and the ones that have been extremely successful, doing it have said the same thing you have i just really? i surrounded myself with smarter people oh hell yeah I, I, mean, I i i i i think i have some smarts but i know there's a bunch of people out there smarter than me and i listen to everybody yeah everyone has something to say and it i'll listen to it you know ultimately i'm the one that has to make the decision yeah and i'm willing to bear that you know yeah. um and, and make the decisions the hard decisions often the right. more, more often than not it's a hard decision that's the skill but um i gotta i gotta bring people in I, yeah. i'm it would be arrogant and naive of me to think i know how to do this uh, well i mean and there's a whole surrounding perspective too like what you're doing is you know in a, very much in a leadership role which you have some experience in you know, in, in a very high stress environment, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, slightly. Yeah. Um, but you know, having in that high stress environment and then being able to make those decisions, but knowing that you need to surround yourself. Well, Hey, I named a guy, I need somebody who knows numbers. Well, I need somebody who knows, you know, decisions in this area of business mm -hmm. ethics, mm -hmm. you know, logistics, right. those things, as you knew on a 12 man team, you know, right. one guy's better at one thing than the other. Right. Of course. And you have to have that in order to make up the whole team. Right. But being able to like humbly admit, like, hey, I don't have all the answers. That's right. a and, tough and, thing to and do. I, and I tell, like, when I sometimes I've told people what I look for, they take, they take, they get offended. I'm like, look, man, let me put it to you like this. Look, I was a sniper for my team. If I'm going on a sniper mission, I'm going to take Brian. He's my sniper partner. Yeah. He's the other sniper. We're, we'll be far more effective than I take, you know, uh, our chief. You know what right. I mean? Or yeah. or one of the other guys. You know, who's not? They, nothing against them. I'm sure they could probably figures that they have skills to bring to bear but not the right skills right so yeah and in order to accomplish a greater mission which in that case is war and battle and being able to you know protect the indigenous peoples <clears throat> you're going to admit you're going to admit that you have that weakness and understand that somebody yeah. else is going to be better than that at you because if you're not admitting that you're getting guys around you killed of course 100 percent. and yeah. I've, I've uh i finally gotten to a point in my life this is you know some years ago where i realized that i'm not ashamed to admit my ignorance <laughs> because as you just pointed out, yeah. particularly in a combat environment, I've seen this happen. If you hide your ignorance, the decisions you make because of your ignorance will get people killed. Mm. Yeah. And I've seen that and mm. I refuse to be part of that. Right. So if I don't know something, I'm that guy in the back of the room like, oh, uh, I didn't get that. Can you dumb it down for me? I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, bro. I, e, yeah. Otra vez, man, please. You know, uh, can we get that again? Yeah, you know, yeah. I'll do that. I'll, I've stopped meetings. I'm like, hold on a stop. Back it up. Mm -hmm. You know, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> okay, Rod. You know, hold, on, hold on. Let's get on the whiteboard. Show me this. You know, I have to because yeah. I want to learn. That's the right. other thing, too, is I want to learn. I want to know. Yeah. You know, I'm thirsty for knowledge. I want to know. I, You know, if I don't know something, I want to learn it. That way, next time, if... You know, my, my badass teammate is standing next to me. I can at least negotiate it to the best of my ability. Yeah. And we were talking about this with, you know, Don and Cecilia last night. Oh, they're awesome. But it's like, yeah, great, yeah. great people. Um, you know, and, and, you know, you sense it in, you know, kind of talking about the plans for this memorial. 
but mm-hmm. you know we talk about like all the logistics of it and decisions that go into it yeah see you about to pass out over there um, yeah, <laughs> all, the, all that goes into it right and yeah. the plans and you know and in positions and locations and all those different things but the decision making process you know we talked to them about it is like or you did um you talked to them about the the aspect of choosing you know all these different things you know putting them all together and how complex that is mm-hmm. you know within that making decisions as a team, mm-hmm. being able to admit those weaknesses and know, hey, man, I don't know everything in right. this area. And but it's a massive project yeah. that deserves and commands all the respect and attention that we can possibly give it. I'm making the Donald Trump hand right now. <laughs> I don't know why, um, but it's just happening. Mm-hmm. It's going to be huge, you know? Like, mm-hmm. So, you know, the decision-making process is so massive, and mm-hmm. but you have to be able to admit those weaknesses. No, you're right. And so, like, last year what we did was, shortly after you know i took the leadership role um we're in the phases so in the 24-step process to build a national memorial in our nation's capital um we're in steps 9 through 12 which is site selection and that entails a lot you know Mm -hmm. like where's it going to go kind of the size and scope and whatever right so even with the robust and very well-established team that we have again i felt it was naive and arrogant of us to think we knew yeah. So uh, I, I I charged our we have a contracting firm on, that we that we hired. I'm like, look, I need I want you guys to develop some discussion groups. I need to collect qualitative and quantitative data mm. from the American people. I want to have these discussion groups and figure out let's find out what it should look like. Should there be shrubbery? Should there be a fountain? Mm-hmm. Should there be hard space? Should there, you know, what should it look? Should it be a flagpole? Uh, large, small, how big, how many acres, half acre, quarter, what, what do you think? Um, but then equally important, what should you feel? What mm. should it say? It's yeah. a, it's, this is going to be a piece of functional art to circle back to art. Yes. You know, it's going to take on a life of its own, like the Korean War Memorial. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Mm, that's interesting. You, you yeah, know? I didn't know that. So, yeah. so, and it's like all the other ones. Even when the Vietnam Wall was built, a lot of people, there was a lot of negative. But, you know, I'm also going into this with my eyes wide open, like, yeah, we're not going to make everybody happy, mm. which is why I'm That is forward. art, too. Yeah, right? exactly. So yeah. that's why I was like, look, we need to create these discussion groups. So we came with a plan, and we conducted discussion groups uh, all, all over the place. Um we spoke with Blue Star families. We spoke with Gold Star families. We spoke with uh, um, faith leaders in the three in in uh, three largest religions: uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it mean? What, you know, they were part of it. Uh, we spoke to the greater portion of our population, those that had never served. Yeah. Um, and then we spoke to uh, our key stakeholders. We actually held three three days of discussion groups supported by Forcecom. Uh, thank you, Sergeant Major Grinston, who's now Sergeant Major of the Army. It's freaking awesome to see. Wow. It. So Michael cool. Michael helped us. Uh, um, you know, three days of, of discussion groups on Fort Bragg of our key stakeholders. Those, those are still in the fire, wow. right? And we had with peer groups: the morning junior enlisted, junior NCO in the afternoon. Uh, junior officer, senior officer, or field grade, then command teams at brigade level. So, you know, over those just those three days, we spoke with 66 service members, active duty service members, both some longer in the tooth like me, some of the older dudes uh, that were still in, um, and then younger privates that hadn't deployed yet that were probably going to go fight um, someday. Wow. And and those 66 individuals represented almost 800 years of service and 200 deployments. Jeez. So we we gathered all this data, we synthesized it, put it together in, in the report that we were keeping internal because everyone wanted to remain somewhat anonymous. We have some demographics and like who, mm. how many people, and we spoke with everybody. We spoke. It was really great about talking to the soldiers. We had several of them that were foreign born, 
you know, they're natural citizens. They're, they're U.S. citizens now, but they're born in other countries. So we, as broad and diverse and inclusive of a discussion groups we could hold to gather this data, we did it. Wow. And when I read it all, once we compiled it all, and I read everybody's paper, I was at almost, I was at every single one except one um, discussion group. Uh, I was so, oh man, I was so relieved. And so it was such a empowering moment, like a feel good moment for me because, you know, you know, the American people are broad tapestry, you know, we're yeah. of people of various beliefs and values and backgrounds and ethnicities and religions and whatever. And all these the million of social labels that people choose to identify with. Right. Uh, it was amazing at how similar everybody's replies were to the same questions we asked everybody, both open-ended and closed questions. Wow. You know, it was phenomenal. I'm like, holy crap, this is the American people. Yeah, we're all different. That's what makes us so gosh damn strong and resilient and, and amazing. And we had these discussions, and I'm not going to agree with you, but I have a discussion with you. But it was so similar. It was eerie. I was like, oh, my gosh. That's wild. This is crazy. Of course, you had your outliers. Some people were like, wow, okay, that's, that's your idea. Cool, whatever. But it was it was amazing. And they told us exactly this is where we want it. This is where we should go. This is what it should say. This is what we think it kind of should look like. Um, and, of course, design will come later on. But it was immensely powerful. And, and, and like I said, that we could not have got that if we hadn't done that. If mm -hmm. we'd have thought, well, let's just do it internally, we never would have got that. Wow. So, so what are the what are the what are the next steps? So right now is is site selection. Besides, you're not yeah. lighting yourself on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's, it's a terif it's terrifying. I'll be yeah, honest. I this can keeps, imagine. This keeps me up at night. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, right now it's site selection. Right now we're trying to find a, a spot on the mall to honor. Mm. You know, and this this memorial because we had to pass a a bill to be allowed to build this. Um, this memorial has no precedence, just like this war has no precedence. Yeah. We're in a multi-generational combat. Con we are in a multi-generational conflict with no clear, clearly forecasted end in sight. When I say multi-generational, that really hit home for me uh, two years ago when my oldest son, who's, uh, who's an infantryman in the 82nd Airborne, deployed to Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, he's a big old six foot, 200 pound plus, you know, bare chested yeah. freedom fighter, you know, smarter, better looking, stronger than I ever was. Um, when me and his mother, you know, hugged him on a green ramp right here before he got in the back of the bird to go to, to Afghanistan, he was performing the QRF mission in the Helmand province. And yeah. anybody that knows anything about that, he's going to get in a fight. Sucks. Um, yeah. so I hugged him. He's like, I had to like lean up the you know, tippy toe hug, you know, type of thing. Um, and he turned around to pick up his rucksack and his weapon and, and he walked away to the, the bus, which was mm. driving to the back of the bird. All I saw, I didn't see this, you know, you know, 82nd Airborne Infantryman. No, of course I saw not. I saw this little toddler walking it's away. It's your baby boy. Yep. Jeez. Broke me in half like a shotgun, no. man. I was just like, God, oh, <laughs> I'm going to be in the car. <laughs> you know, I'm getting all choked up now, you know, yeah. but that really touched me, you know, and, I, and we're not a special family. There are, there are tens of thousands of families just like ours. That it doesn't matter, though, man, because that's your individual experience, mm -hmm. and that's what you experienced. Right. And that, for you, is powerful. That's tangible because mm -hmm. you raised him. And, you know, and it was, it's tough, you know, having three kids mm -hmm. and for part of that, you know, being a single dad, like in your, in that part and mm -hmm. having to raise him through that. And then you get to the spot where it's like, he's making his own decisions. Oh yeah. It was, it's crazy. And I, I tell people, so I deployed nine times throughout my career, you know, um, those were not my most difficult deployments. The mm -hmm. most difficult deployments for me was watching Antonio and their mother deploy, mm -hmm. watching my loved ones 
deploy. Yeah. That was so difficult and it took on a whole new thing where, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, that really this shows how much the family does serve. I could not have done my job had I didn't had I not had them supporting me doing what I was doing overseas, right. knowing that they were loving me no matter what. And and I like to think they think the same thing. And it's like that for all families. So the, the military families, especially the military child. It's it's amazing. And people think because Antonio is his name Antonio, uh um, because both his parents are retired senior NCOs, we encouraged it. Like, no, that was his choice, his decision. You know, we neither encouraged nor discouraged military service. It's a personal choice that everyone has to make. Um, and he chose to do that. And we're immensely proud. I don't want to diminish it, but it, it has to be. And he knows more than many because, you know, like I, I mentioned, I've lost a lot of friends. And he's lost he has friends that lost their fathers and never came home he knows like my friends are you know we're a small community we hang out with each other so when their dad doesn't come home you know the kids talk yeah so he's seen what's like he knows the price he knows like you know when i had to go through my stuff and he knows what's like when his mother deploys he knows it's crazy so that was his decision but you know when i tell that i always have i want to be sure that people that are listening or anybody that i'm talking to i'm not talking down to you i don't judge anybody for not serving right you know and patriotism has many there's many ways, good ways to be a patriot. And it doesn't always mean, you know, raising your right hand, joining the military, picking up on, you know, putting on our nation, you don't want to pick up a gun and going in harm's way. You know, right. you can be, there's so many other ways to be a good mm-hmm. American citizen and patriot, you know. Uh, we see in the examples of guys like Bert Soren and, yeah, you know, other I mean, people like that. And who, even, you know, just, just be, a good, caregivers be, a, good, too. be a good person, yeah. pay your taxes, follow the yeah. laws, respect the police officers, uh, vote. I yeah. mean, smile. I mean, there's there's right. so many other ways to do it. So I don't, I don't, and a lot of us don't feel that way. You know, I don't ever look down on anyone that's never served as as like, oh, you didn't die. You didn't yeah. die. Man, no, I, we're, I'm a, I was an American citizen. I'm still an American citizen. I'm an American. I'm a proud patriot. And we, we're all the same. It's a massive misconception. Um, something that I've seen, you know, especially from the Green Berets is, you know, some of the hardest dudes that I've ever met in my life. You know, guys, even, you know, from these different tiered groups, mm-hmm. even the unit and all of them being, you know, telling me like, dude, we don't look down on those people that don't serve at all. No. Like we get it. Like yeah. it's, it's not, it's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. And there are so many different ways you can serve right. over here too, you know? So the guys who you would think would be like, you know, Oh, what? You're not joining up, you know, get yeah. over there. You know, we yeah. need more, uh, you know, they're, they're the ones <laughs> often, you know, say, did you like that? Yeah, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Got the real tree hat on. <laughs> Deer season start yet? I know no. people season did, <laughs> but like you know that that ability, man, just to you know they look straight past that and they're like, hey, you can serve at home. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that so you know what yeah. you just said, so common amongst you know you know Nate and Tim and all those guys mm-hmm. have said the same thing. Yeah, you know? I I believe it. I'm, yeah. you know, and a yeah. lot of us do. It's just like, look, man, I'm. You know, and and when I read that report, talking with everybody after we did that, I was like, "Yep, we're the American people." It was such a, it was such a welcome affirmation. Yeah. That that I was just like, oh, man. I mean, I like choked up just talking about it. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, it was, it's so inspiring that to be part of this, you know, truly uh, profound project. And and you know, I believe we all share a sacred duty to honor all those you know women and men that have stepped forward, you know, to face terror. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, Mike, uh, you know, I asked this, this is one of the kind of the scripted questions that I asked, but, you know, I, it's something that I want to hit on 
obviously you're doing something incredible right now. What's most important to you and your legacy and how people see you, view you, you know, your family, all that. I know as a very tough, broad question. Yeah. Um, but what do you think is most important within all that? Like um, how people view you, you know, how one people day? view me. Yeah. Um, hey, man, I don't know. Everything if that even I, I'm matters. Not, I'm not someone know? that like, like, Oh man, I, you know, if people care what, but what you do you know, want your legacy um, to be shaped as? I, I I hope people at the end of the day, man, just hey, Rod did his best, man. You yeah. know, he did his best, and I hope I'm looked at as you know a good father. I'll be honest, yeah. man. That my the most important job I have right now is being a positive male role model mm. in my son and grandson's life. Yeah. By far, like seriously, that's, that's awesome. to me that is more important than anything right now. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, Mike, I just wanted to say that it's been an absolute privilege. Having no, you hey, on. thanks for coming out, man. I appreciate man. you hanging out with me and working out with me. It was a good time. Dude, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> it's a, I always tell people, you know, when I'm doing a project on them, like, you're taking a lot more on than you think, you know. I'm gonna be, I'm just I'm going to be eating out of your pantry. I'm going to be sleeping on your couch. <laughs> we'll be working out with you. Yeah, no, it was a good yeah. time, man. It's been great, man. I appreciate you coming on, and I uh, appreciate all that you're doing for the community now, man. It says a lot about you to keep you know, continuing on in your service after service. No, I was trying to do my so, part, bro. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah. Familia, right? Familia. Yeah. yeah. All big familia, bro. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, it's been great having you on. I want to give a huge shout out to D-Day Response Group, um, Don and Cecilia, uh, for sponsoring this project. Um, you know, they obviously love Mike. They love the project. They love storytelling. They want to see these legacies proper, properly captured. So, um, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.